Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today. That's Geico.com. Thank goodness 2020 is finally behind us. Unfortunately, a lot of us put Christmas on a credit card and those bills, well, they're still in front of us. Here's a pro tip for you. Don't make a new year's resolution to save money. Just head over to SaveWithConrad.com right now. We make saving money fast and easy. Just ask Benji in Louisiana. He left us a five-star review and wrote, why did I wait so long? Process was very easy. No hard sell. Signed closing documents at my kitchen table. What about Jared up in Beeville, Texas? He says this was a quick and easy process. First family was very helpful and easy to communicate with. They always got back to me in a timely manner. I would recommend first family to anyone. What about William in Gallatin, Tennessee? He says it was great working with Jimmy and the rest of Conrad staff at first family. Who knew listening to grilling JR and something to wrestle could save me over 130 grand and seven years off of my loan with almost no increase in payment. Find out how much money you can save right now for free at savewithconrad.com. Here's the thing. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket or licensed in more than 40 states. So what are you waiting for? If you've got credit card debt, it's not a matter of if we can save you money. It's a matter of how much. Find out right now for free. Keep more of your own money at savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months? Hurry to savewithconrad.com right now. Steven's brand new deep navy blue and sparkling 24 karat gold dip twinkle twinkle roses here. But time is already running out because the brand new color sells out each year. Don't miss out. Imagine on Valentine's Day when she opens this really cool gift box and outslides a blue rose trimmed in gold. You know, blue, the color of the sky just before the sun sets, and you can start to see all the stars sparkling in the night sky. It's breathtaking. Go now to see this real 24 karat gold rose deeply dipped in real pure 24 karat gold with petals in this unique and dazzling blue color that mimics the stars in the sky. Exclusively available at Steven Singer Jewelers. Real jewelers, real roses, really dipped in pure 24 karat gold with a real lifetime guarantee. It's always the number one Valentine's Day gift that lasts forever. It comes with your own free personal love note and ships fast and free to the real love of your life, your wife, your daughter, your sweetheart, and say, I'm lucky to have you in my life. Check out the entire collection of Stephen's famous roses. Roses start at only $59. Go right now to IHateStevenSinger.com. That's IHateStevenSinger.com.
Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? You can call me Rocket Man from now on. Just to let you know, I'm doing great, but I, I would prefer to be referred to as the Rocket Man. You know why, Conrad? I'm, I'm anxious to learn. Because Mrs. B and I, here in Huntsville, spent the day yesterday at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. Oh, wow. Like a couple of marks. How did it go? It was a blast. We both really, really enjoyed it. And it it answered a lot of questions for me. And please don't take this the wrong way. Sure. But I I often wondered, you know, why is there so much technology in Huntsville? Right. Why, Why is that? I mean, I can see if it was in Birmingham, you know, it kind of makes sense. Bigger city, close to Atlanta, whatever. And I always wondered why are all these major worldwide technology powerhouses based in Huntsville? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, learning the history of, about, you know, the arsenal and, and when they moved the space, you know, program here to Huntsville to kind of merge the, the arsenal and the development of chemical munitions and things like that with the technology, you know, to make the, the, the rocket U S space program work. It all kind of made sense. So it was just fascinating. You know, I, I remember, and this is weird. We're here to talk about wrestling and I want to talk about the first moon landing, but I remember, you know, July 20th, 1969. I remember exactly where I was when I watched, you know, man, step on the moon the very first time. It was a big damn deal yeah, uh, around the world. But to be able to physically, you know, learn or to, to see some of the technology and see some of the, you know, the space capsules and all the, you know, the physical things that were a part of that program. But then to, you know, watch them, you know, we went, we watched a movie in the theater about it and just it, it all kind of brought it together and it really was a fascinating afternoon. So there you go. Added a little context to Huntsville, if you will. And I get it now. I, I really do get it. And it kind of makes me think, you know, this might not be a bad place to invest and in, come in, on in, because it's, you know, that stuff's not going to go away. No, you know, that's only going to keep growing and becoming more and more important. So I get it now. I was always so why Huntsville, right? But now it makes sense. Well, welcome to Alabama, baby. We're excited that you're here and we're excited that you're here with us today to talk about the 32nd clash of the champions. Uh, I always like talking about clash of the champions. And as we're doing this one, we just passed, I guess it was, uh, as we record this yesterday was the 25 year anniversary. This does not feel like 25 years ago to me, Eric. I can't imagine it does to you. No, nah, it blows me away. You know, and I say this so often, I try to prevent myself from re- being redundant, repeating things all the time. But it's such an odd experience for me to go back and watch these shows. Again, everybody knows I've said it a million times, actually probably 200 and no, probably about 160 <laughs> times that, you know, I didn't, this is the first time I've seen this show. Right. I mean, I know I did the show. I produced the show for God's sake. I was a talent on the show, but producing the show and being a talent on the show prevents you from sitting down and actually watching it. Right. right? And once it's over, it's over. It's on to the next big show or whatever it is you're doing. So I didn't watch this show. And to be able to sit back and watch it, and it's just, it's such a weird experience for me, you know, having been there, obviously, and pretty significant role in the whole thing. 
but sitting back 25 years later and watching it is just such a weird experience, but I'm really grateful for it. Let's talk about Las Vegas for a minute. It's going to become a bigger part of WCW. I think you guys actually ran your first show at Caesars a year prior and it was attached to the, the TV convention. And, and I think that's what this one is attached to as well. Sort of catch us up about the significance of that convention, why it maybe mattered more for WCW than say to the WWF at the time and why you wanted to sort of build an event around that convention. And we haven't talked about this at all, but when I realized that that was the timing of the show, I thought that's crazy. Like a Fox, that's pretty good strategy. Yeah. The NAPTI convention and NAPTI, what is it? Uh, National Association of Programming and Television Executives, I think is the acronym, but that's what it stands for. It, it, it's the decision makers, producers, program directors. Well, for the broadcast side of things, the business side of things, it's the television networks, syndicated television stations, agents thereof, and people like you know, WCW and other, you know, independent television producers and, and networks would often, they would go to these conventions because the networks and the independent television producers, people like tele, WCW, for example, in this case, Turner Broadcasting, <clears throat> who owned WCW and produced that original content, were there to try to sell those programs um, to the syndicated television market. Now, Back in the 90s, syndicated television was a much bigger deal. In the 80s, it was a really big deal. As time has gone on and cable has become bigger and bigger and bigger, syndicated television became less and less significant. Now with streaming and everything else, you know, the NAPTI convention used to be a massive, massive convention. Um, I mean, really, other than the Super Bowl parties, I don't think any convention had bigger and better parties than the annual NAPTI convention. And they were typically held, they would alternate, I think, between Las Vegas and New Orleans for a long time. I think now they hold them, you know, in a parking lot at a Walmart somewhere outside <laughs> of Canton, Canton, Ohio. It just doesn't matter anymore. But back in the day, you know, I've said this before, I went to one convention, and this one might have been actually in Miami, was one of the last ones I went to. Um, they had the Eagles playing. You know, I mean, and, and the Eagles hadn't really even toured in a long, long time. So it was that big. There was that much money changing hands because syndicated television was a big freaking deal. And this year, and I think the year previous, NAPTI, the convention, was in Las Vegas. So what a better time, you know, to showcase a live show on a major cable outlet than doing it at the convention when all of these television executives were there. It was a perfect, perfect opportunity for us. So it, it was smart. And, and I do want to go back. I'm not so sure that syndicated television wasn't as important to WWE in 1996 as it was WCW. I just think we made the decision to capitalize on the location. Well, and perhaps, you know, I guess where I was going with that is you're owned by a TV company. You know, whereas WWE is, is a traditional wrestling company the year prior, I just want to give some context, January 25th, 1995 at Caesars palace. It was clash of the champions 30. It was Arn Anderson, Johnny B bad for the TV title, Alex Wright and Bobby Eaton. 
The tag titles were on the line for Harlem heat and stars and stripes, which is Bagwell and the Patriot. Uh, sting is working with avalanche. And then the main event was Hogan and Savage against Kevin Sullivan and the butcher. So <laughs> we're carting out our big stars though. I mean, you, you, you want to have Hulk Hogan in front of these TV execs. You want to have the macho man. You want to have sting. Uh, it, it made a lot of sense. Fast forward. We're going to talk about today's card, but once again, Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage are in the main event. That's not by accident. You know, you've got these TV executives. You want to put on a show with your biggest stars, right? Absolutely. And, and that's exactly what we did. We loaded up that main event. I think the only people that weren't in the main event, um, were the people who provided catering, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. It was, everybody was in that thing. It was pretty fun to watch. So let's talk about it. This show in particular draws a sellout of 3,100 fans. Meltzer would say there was 2,750 paying fans. The gates only 52 grand, but it's Caesar's palace. It's a second night of a two night sellout double header. Um, he would write, there appeared to be about 150 empty seats in the small who had bought tickets for both nights and then burned out after the first night. And I guess that's always a potential issue. If you will, uh, doing back-to-back shows just to give context. The night before was nitro. Obviously nitro is, um, in its infancy, you know, starting at the, the tail end of 95, here we are in early 96, we're going to follow up the very next night with a clash of the champions. Was there a concern about doing a double header in the same town like that? Or because it was a smaller arena, did you think, ah, we can pull that off? We were pretty confident we could pull it off, but there was, you know, it, it is an obvious concern, you know, two nights of back-to-back wrestling is a tough sell. Um, the great thing about Las Vegas though, because it's a convention town <clears throat> is you get a pretty good turnover yep. of people. Uh, now, you know, a Tuesday nights, and I think this was on a Tuesday night, wasn't it? Yes, it is. Must've been. Yeah. Tuesday nights are a little tough in Vegas because people are coming in to Las Vegas for the convention business. They're coming into Las Vegas maybe a little bit starting on Wednesday by Thursday, there's a lot of a yes. lot going on. And then your conventions are Friday and Saturday and people start lo- leaving town, you know, Sunday and, and, and Monday. So that Tuesday's right in that, you know, gray area, kind of murky, risky area. So there was a little bit of concern. And I think the observation that, you know, people might have, be getting burned out on wrestling is a valid one. It sounds like a great idea. Oh, back to back wrestling. This would be great. It's nitro class of the champions, but you know, you sit through two hours of live wrestling. And again, it's Las Vegas. There's a lot of other stuff going on. It, I would imagine it would be very easy for people who thought they was going to, they were going to go to two nights of wrestling to decide after the first night, maybe they'll, you know, go watch another show or go to a strip club or whatever, whatever. There's a lot going on. Yeah. A lot of choices in Vegas. The other thing I want to bring up about this show, uh, because as we like to say here on the show, context is King. This is the last clash of the champions before the NWO. So this is the last time you'll see WCW in its traditional, you know, here's the formula type of presentation, and we're going to throw it all out the window in may. And the next clash of the champions is in August. So it's kind of fun with the benefit of hindsight to look back and, and really recognize and appreciate this is the last time it's going to look like this. And thank God it was, you know, (laughs) (laughs) we still, you know, we continued with, 
I don't even know how to define the previous you know presentation of WCW, which was basically a ripoff of what WWE was doing. Yeah. You know, there and which was basically the same formula that everybody had been doing in professional wrestling for since the beginning of television time. It was very animated. It was very uh, cartoonish. It was over the top. Um, I don't think anybody really took professional wrestling too seriously <clears throat> once they got to be about twelve or fourteen years old. Back in the seventies and the eighties, especially, they still loved it. Don't get me wrong; I'm not being critical here. People still loved professional wrestling in the seventies and the eighties, and even into the nineties with the, you know, previous formula. We'll call it uh, because it was larger than life. It was entertaining. It was colorful. It was all the things that generally make you know entertainment work. And keep in mind, before the end of the, you know before the end of the nineties, early two thousands. Wrestling was considered wrestling really was alternative television right before alternative television actually became a legitimate industry term and category. Um, wrestling was, it wasn't a sitcom, but it was kind of fun. It, you know, it wasn't drama, but it really was. There were great storylines. It was, you know, not sports, but kind of is, you know, it's athletic. Uh, and I guess that's why, you know, Vince came up with the sports entertainment, you know, term, but once, you know, we threw that formula out the window, for the most part, we still kept a lot of it. We've talked about this before on the show, the Dungeon of Doom. And there was a lot of other silly pre-NWO pre, pre presentation. You know, some of that still carried over because not everybody, you know, wanted to see everything to be so reality-based. People still love to see some of that overtop comedic you know, silly stuff um, that they'd grown up with. But for the most part, yeah, we, we did kind of scrap out with the old in with the new and the, the new being the more reality-based storyline approach and character approach that the NWO represented. Let's talk a little bit about Caesar's palace. Uh, Caesar's is where you hold this show and the clash of the champions 30 from January of 95. So when, when we're booking a venue to sort of prop up our, uh, TV convention initiative, Caesars gets the nod, but I think most people, when they think about WCW in Vegas, they think of MGM grant because later this year in 1996, you're going to kick off Halloween havoc there. And it almost becomes a staple, uh, for that particular show. It's going to be at MGM grand in Las Vegas. Tell us about Caesars and why Caesars got the nod. And ultimately why MGM wound up landing Halloween havoc. Well, there was a, you know, there were multiple reasons why I think Caesar's palace worked. One of the reasons why it worked is that they had a venue, you know, that they used, I think they use it for boxing and in, in various forms of uh, televised sports, but it was a smaller venue. You know, th- you could, you could make it look pretty full with 3000 people. Whereas the MGM Grand, you know, in 95 and early in 1996, when WCW couldn't draw, you know, 15,000 people, those venues would have been too big. So Caesars Palace had a number of different venues. I think they had two or three different venues. And the one that we were in for this show in the previous year were ideal size for us. 3,000, a 3,000-seat 3, venue was a really good size venue for WCW in 94, 95, and early you know, pre NWO 96, because that was, we were relatively certain that we could, 
if not completely fill it, come close. And as Meltzer pointed out, we may have been, you know, a couple hundred seats short or whatever it was, but pretty hard to tell for the average viewer sitting at home watching. It still looked full and it still had a lot of energy. Whereas if we would have gone to MGM Grand, for example, for this particular episode of Clash of the Champions, you would have still only probably got 3,000 people in there and you put 3,000 people in a venue that's designed for 15,000. Looks bad. And it's bad. It's a bad day. (laughs) And the other reason that I like Caesars Palace is because they had a bar there. I think still do call Cleopatra's Barge. Right there. And do they still have it there? Yeah. I, you know, I miss that place. I, Mrs. B and I, yeah, we don't gamble. We, neither one of us enjoy gambling. In fact, it drives me crazy. I can't stand gambling. I don't mind blowing money. I'll go spend you know, more <laughs> money than I, I'll go spend more money than I should on a pair of sunglasses or a pair of cowboy boots. No problem with that. Or I'll go drop, you know, $500 on a good sushi dinner. I have no issue with that. But to leave $100 on a table and just walk away with nothing in my hand or my belly, uh-uh, I can't do it. Right. But watching people gamble it's is fun. fun. Yeah. I can live vicariously through them and have enough money to go buy a pair of boots or a pair of sunglasses. Whereas if I'm sitting at that table, that's probably not going to, you know, most of the time, that's not going to be the case. So people watching, generally speaking, in Las Vegas is one of the reasons that Mrs. B and I love it. You know, that and the food and obviously the shows. But the thing I liked about Cleopatra's Barge is we would go down there like around 10 o'clock at night, you know, which is when Vegas is actually coming to life. You know, you have all kinds of people there all day long, 24 hours a day. But by 10 o'clock, everybody that's serious about playing in Las Vegas starts coming out, right? So Mrs. B and I would go to Cleopatra's barge, get a nice comfortable seat where you can watch the people. Now it's changed. Now they've reconfigured Caesar's palace. Last time I was there, it wasn't exactly the same, but back then you could sit at Cleopatra's barge and you could watch all the people moving back and forth between the different parts of Caesar's palace. It was like, you know, sitting on park Avenue in New York city, watching people walk by and it's the best people watching in the world. Cause you get such a cross section of, of, cultures and people and ages and everything else you can imagine walking through. It's, it's fun just in a general sense, but at Cleopatra's barge about 11 o'clock, the hookers would start showing up. (laughs) (laughs) This is the best I miss. This is one of the things I miss about Vegas. So the hookers would start showing up and they're pretty easy to figure out. I mean, they were, you know, attractive, beautiful, well-dressed, all that. It is Las Vegas, but you see this really attractive, you know, 20 something, early 30 something, you know, woman sit down, dress pretty well, sit down there and order, order a drink by herself. And typically they're drinking a diet Coke or diet Pepsi or something. They're not drinking alcohol. They're not there to participate in the festivities of the evening or Las Vegas necessarily. They're there to make money. So, you, you know, you pick out, okay, there's a hooker over there. Oh, oh there's one over there. Oh, over on the other side. See, there's one over there too. Okay, we got three in the house. And then you almost like start watching your clock. You know, you start making bets over and under. I bet you she gets picked up in 10 minutes or less. <laughs> you start, we, you know, we making bets on our own, right? And then you just watch this whole thing transpire. And I'm, I'm going to tell you one funny story. I don't know if I've ever told this one to you before. I hope I haven't discussed it on this show, but there was one time in particular, Mrs. B and I were sitting at the bar, we're having a couple of cocktails and we're watching all this stuff unfold, you know, before us. And this guy comes down 
and you could tell he's been drinking. Oh, he's in a suit. And it wasn't, I don't think it was this particular night. This was another, or this particular weekend. It was another trip altogether. But this guy comes down, he's in a suit. You can tell he's there on business, right? Got a nice watch on. He's got his wedding ring on, you know, but he's hammered. You can tell he's hammered. So sure enough, he, you know, settles up next to this hooker sitting at the bar, Cleopatra's barge. And within about, I don't know, five minutes or less, they both disappear. Check the time. <laughs> about oh, 20 minutes or a half hour later, he comes back. She's nowhere to be found. She disappears. Ties gone. His shirt's hanging out. His watch is gone. Oh. He's complaining to the bartender, wondering where his wallet went, his credit card went, because he's blaming the bartender. Oh, In God. fact, his hooker got him up to the room and rolled him, took everything on him, and he comes stumbling down to the bar trying to figure out what just happened to him. It's just that kind of stuff is what makes this sounds terrible. I'm making myself sound like a horrible person. But it's the most entertaining part of going to Las Vegas is just watching that kind of stuff go on, um, watching people win lots of money, watching people react when they lose lots of money. You know, it's it's human emotion and weakness at its finest. We're going to have to get our animator over at adfreeshows.com, uh, the great Fred Chernoff, to make a story of that because mm. you just became, whether you realize it or not, I don't know that. Do you remember the crocodile hunter like Steve Irwin? Yeah. So, crikey, yeah. That, there's one right there. That's you. <laughs> You're the hooker hunter of Las Vegas. There's one in the wild. Watch. The <laughs> the pink. All right. Uh, who's ever on the Ad Free Shows team <laughs> that that is that is responsible for this type of thing, do not, do not even suggest a t-shirt that says hooker hunter. Oh, that I don't want to see it. It'll be live <laughs> later today, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm really excited to talk about just the whole Vegas thing, because Vegas is really a fun wrestling town. I mean, going back to WrestleMania nine, that's where most wrestling fans were first familiar with Caesar's palace, but just add some context for a moment here. Caesar's palace was a fight capital as well. There were so many great boxing events that happened there. Uh, and even, you know, from a promotional standpoint years ago, evil Knievel jumped the fountains at Caesar's palace. Like Caesar's palace had some cachet not just in sports, but in entertainment as well. Right. So it's a big thing just to rub your brand WCW up against Caesar's palace. It's, it's a lot bigger than center stage or, you know, whatever. Right. Well, no. And you know, a couple of weeks ago, I guess I've lost all sense of time. You know, Mrs. B and I've been on the road now for almost eight straight weeks. Um, and I've enjoyed and I'm grateful for every second of it because we got to be with our, our friends and family and, you know, the holidays and all that. But as I was telling Stan right before we went live, um, producer Stan, for those of you who are listening that don't know, um, if I don't, you know, drink a cup of coffee out of my own coffee cup and sleep in my own bed pretty quick, I'm going to go batshit. I right. Just, I, I am. But going to your point, Vegas was one of the reasons, and this is where I was going a couple of weeks ago, whenever it was, we were talking about, you know, what was WCW going to do or what were we, what was Eric Bischoff and fusion media going to do with WCW had the, the purchase of WCW been successful and gone through. Right. And we talked a lot about going to, you know, Las Vegas and having a permanent home there. 
one of the big differences, and I think it came up on that podcast, one of the big differences be- between having a resident production facility, if you will, in Las Vegas and having one at Disney MGM Studios, for example, or Universal Studios like TNA did, um, was that Las Vegas did have that built-in entertainment branding and sports branding that, that came with it because people were so used to seeing, you know, all Mike Tyson fight. I mean, so many of the big, big fights that people would really talk about that would generate buzz were all coming from Las Vegas by this point. Yeah. You know, you talked about evil Knievel, you know, jumping the, I, mean, I remember that actually evil Knievel attempting because he ended up crashing and breaking his back and went into a coma for, a month or whatever it was. I mean, it, it wasn't a successful jump, but I remember that. I think it was on wide world of sports, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but for decades, you know, Las Vegas was sports, was entertainment. So having a residence or in this case, just producing a show from Las Vegas brought a lot of added value in terms of branding and communication and marketing to the audience, as well as to advertisers, because people looked at, you know, if you, if you're playing Las Vegas, if you're playing Caesar's palace in Las Vegas, you're a big damn deal. It's, right. it's a little bit like Madison square garden in New York from an advertising and branding kind of marketing position. You know, when you're, if you're having an event at Madison square garden, um, you're a big damn deal. It's often why I don't know the, what I'm about to say is accurate or true. I don't intend it to be a lie, but you know, I'm pretty certain that WWE never makes any money when they, when they sell out Madison square garden, if they're producing a television show there, because it's so freaking expensive to produce a show in Las Vegas or excuse me, in Madison square garden, that even though you may sell it out, it doesn't quite offset the expense of producing a show there. But it doesn't really matter because to the rest of the world, you're coming to them live from Madison Square Garden. And that has an intrinsic value that sometimes outweighs the cash value uh, at the door, much like Sturgis did in a way for us. By the way, you're exactly right. I mean, we've heard Jim Ross talk about, you know, when he was an administrator for WWE, he would go to Vince and he would say, man, we sold out and we're still losing money. Like this doesn't make sense. And, and Vince's attitude was exactly what you just laid out that it had real value beyond the bottom line, uh, to say that you had a show there. Hey, real quick. I want to remind you if you've got credit card debt, or if you're in a 30 year loan, save with Conrad.com can get you the best deal you've ever had. Can we get you a better interest rate on your mortgage? Absolutely. Can we help you pay your house off faster and keep roughly the same monthly payment? We do it all the time. What about credit card debt? Can we help you knock that out? 100%. We should mention we routinely help our listeners save five, six, seven, even 800 bucks a month. Find out how much money you can save right now for free. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. And if we can't help you save some cash, we won't waste your time. We're licensed in more than 40 states. So what are you waiting for? Hurry to savewithconrad.com. NLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Seriously, let me and my staff at First Family Mortgage help you get 2021 started right. Save a boatload of cash at SaveWithConrad.com. Going back to Caesars, though, how are they as a partner for you? How are they to work with? Do you recall? You know, I didn't deal directly with management of Caesars. You know, that was handled by Zane Bresloff, Gary Jester, you know, and the people on that side of the equation. Uh, my interactions with management at, at Caesar's Palace was formal, I guess. Yeah. Um, what what one might ex- 
expect. Hi, how are you? Eric Bischoff, you know, whoever you were, you know, great to meet you. Thanks for the hospitality. You guys are great partners. We love being here. All of which was true, by the way. Um, but it never went beyond the, you know, that in terms of, you know, the nuts and bolts of, you know, making that relationship work was handled by other people. I, I can just tell you that, it, you know, it was flawless. There were never any issues that would rise up to my level at that point. Um, which means everything must have been going pretty smooth because if there would have been an issue, I would have heard about it and I never did. You know, we've talked a little bit about Zane Bresloff here on the show before, and, and certainly we've talked a lot about Gary Jester. I'm curious, did you know, I mean, if you had to guess, and I know you really probably at this point do just have to guess, but would you have already had Halloween havoc lined up, you know, as far as we're going to be back here, you know, in several months for Halloween havoc. Or is this one of those deals where this goes well and you say, Hey, you know what? What if we just tried because you just laid out a minute ago, I didn't know that it necessarily made sense for us to try to run, you know, and impress all these TV executives in essentially an empty arena, you know, this giant arena with very few fans, but you are going to do that later this year. Uh, but you don't know at this point, the NWO is going to be a thing or it's going to get hot or any of that. So it feels like maybe you had to have a building booked. And I think you've even said before, oftentimes we would have venues booked more than a year in advance. Do you think here in January, you already had MGM booked for October? No. Okay. No, we wouldn't have done it. We wouldn't have had the balls to do that for sure. You know, and you laid it out perfectly. You know, the NWO, uh, Hall and Ash weren't even available to us in January. Right. I didn't even, I hadn't even had a conversation with them. So there, the idea of creating this invasion type angle had certainly not occurred to me. Um, there were so many things that we didn't know in January that we did know, you know, in June that no, there was no way we would have had MGM even identified as a, as a possible uh, venue probably identified Vegas as a place we wanted to go back to for all the reasons we've already discussed, but more than likely didn't have a venue um, arranged at that point. Now to your point, and you, you, you remember everything. Kind of <laughs> I got to be very careful what I say to you, but um, it is tough. You do have to plan ahead to nail down venues um, sometimes six months, sometimes a year in advance, depending on the venue, of course. But because there's so many opportunities in Las Vegas, venue-wise, there's, I mean, literally, you can go almost down any any block you want to and throw a Frisbee and hit a venue that would work, especially at this point, when all you need is 2,500, 3,500 right. people. There's a lot of 2,500, 3,500 seat arenas in Las Vegas. So I think we probably had Vegas pinpointed for October, but did not have a venue. So let's, let's talk about what's going on. Give some context to WCW 96. Uh, it's in the observer. Eric Bischoff responded on the WCW hotline to the WWF skits in a 10 minute segment with Mike Tanay on January 23rd. Now you might be wondering what skits is he talking about? Well, it's the billionaire Ted skits. They started running the whole billionaire Ted and the huckster and the nacho man and all of that in January of 96. Uh, Meltzer would write Bischoff said he didn't think it was a gamble at all to go heads up on Monday night raw because he believed his company had the superior talent, but he said he felt because raw was so entrenched and people are creatures of habit that he thought at first it would take two years before WCW could match raw's ratings. He said he didn't think there was such a thing as oversaturation on television. As long as you work to keep the quality of the TV high, 
He said the pay-per-view buy rates have been dropping for the past 18 months. So he didn't believe nitro was the cause. He said the WBF putting the in your house pay-per-view shows, which he called nothing but a TV show with a price tag added to it have clearly been more of a culprit for pay-per-view going down. As for the billionaire Ted skits, he said, quote, clearly it's desperation. Clearly he's a desperate man doing desperate things. Lot to unpack here. Uh, what do you make of, uh, your appearance on the hotline here and, uh, your thinking at the time? I was, and still am one of the smartest people in the industry. Man, I hit it right on the head. You know, everything it. I said, everything I said was true. Yeah. Um, and accurate. So, um, I'm glad, I'm glad I articulated it, the articulated it the way I did <clears throat> when I did. And like I said, it, it was all, it was all true. I did think it was going to take two years or more, um, to be able to catch WWF or even get close. It, di- it didn't. It, no, it, it, it didn't. You know, and that's one of the fascinating things. I, I'm going to be careful how I say this, but, you know, wrestling fans today, and, and so many of them weren't around during this period of time, the 90s when Nitro launched and when Nitro took over WWF. But just, and I have to remind myself of this sometimes because sometimes I forget how significant it was because it was a long time ago and I've lived it and most of it's in my, my rearview mirror, which I don't spend a lot of time in anymore unless I'm doing this show. But, you know, to, to launch a show, Nitro, against Monday Night Raw, the flagship show yeah. of, of, of WWE, which had been there for, I don't know how long it had been on USA Network on Monday nights at that point, a decade or so, um, close to it. You know, WWE itself is a brand, formerly WWF, formerly WWF, whatever the hell it was. It's just like a, a, a company that had been around for 30 or 40 years at this point um, that we decided to go head-to-head with their flagship show, Monday in prime time. That was a ballsy move. And again, that wasn't my, those weren't my balls, by the way. They were Ted Turner's. That was his call, not mine. I wouldn't have chosen that fight. Um, So I'm not trying to pat myself on the back there, but I will reach around and pat myself on the back at the success that we had. And and today, trying to bring it back to, you know, today, the context of what's going on today, you see, you know, little, you know, dipshits like Brian Alvarez getting so excited because AEW, you know, outperforms basically the developmental territory for WWE. They're not beating Monday Night Raw. They're not going head-to-head against SmackDown in prime time. They're beating a a, a third-string show, and that's exactly what NXT is. It's a developmental show. They're not their top stars, whereas AEW has their top stars. And again, this is not a, a, a knock on AEW. No. This is, a, I think, more of a knock on the people like Brian Alvarez who are continually trying to make the case, you know, that – you know, AEW is, is, is beating WWF. It would be like me, you know, in the early nineties when WWE had a syndicated show on the air on wherever it was and me putting my syndicated show or my a show taking WCW Saturday night and putting it up against a, a WWE, you know, Saturday morning time slot and syndication say, wow, I beat WWE. No, you didn't, you know, not really. And, and the reason that I, I want to point this out is, again, not necessarily 
put WCW over or Nitro over and all the people that were involved in it. But to A, point out just how significant it was at this point in time, because it's easy to lose sight of just how significant that success was, particularly in the time frame that we were able to achieve it. But moreover, bringing it back to today, I think the danger that is caused by people like Brian Alvarez and, and, and people, fans that react to that type of thing and trying to establish this, you know, oh, AEW is outperforming WWE, you know, holy, I mean, it's great. It's fun, but it's kind of like cosplay, you know, it's not real. It's, it's cool. And it's, it's, I'm very happy for AEW. I think it says a lot for them that they're able to, having been in business for only one year, a little over one year now, I guess, to be able to compete against a WWE product successfully because WWE still has the advantage. I know I'm going all over the map here, but I'm excited. WWE has a lot of advantages that AEW AEW doesn't have. They've been around a lot longer. They've got a built-in audience, you know, between Monday night and Friday night, you know, all around the world, you've got such a massive audience that it's easy to cross promote, you know, their, their different shows. And for example, it's easy to cross promote NXT, you know, from Monday night or even on SmackDown, just simply by making references to it. Well, AEW doesn't have that advantage. You know, WWE has established talent that a lot of them that have been big stars and important characters, you know, for decades, you know, in some cases, at least 10 years and others and six or eight years who have reached that level of, a you know, brand awareness and equity as characters at WWE, or excuse me, AEW has a few of those, you know, Chris Jericho being one of them now sting certainly being another, but if you look at the rest of that roster for the most part, um, John Moxley, obviously, you know, an exception, there are exceptions. If, if I forget to name them, I apologize in advance, but for the most part, you know, 80% of the AEW roster are relatively new, young, up and coming stars, yeah. which is a credit to AEW, by yeah. the way, this is, I want to acknowledge that, but it definitely, it still puts them at a disadvantage in terms of being able to compete. So all of this is just meant to say, you know, as a wrestling fan, as someone who wants to see AEW succeed, and oh, I want to see WWE, see, I want to see everybody succeed, right? I mean, just, I have no dog in the hunt in terms of who wins and who loses. I want to see the business elevate. It's better for all of us. It's better for this show. It's better for you and I. The more people that are interested in wrestling, the more people that we'll be able to reach with our show and the rest of the shows on, on adfreeshows.com and your podcast empire. <laughs> but you know, be careful about trying to create this false sense of success or superiority. That's the way I want to say it. Be careful about trying to brag and present this false sense of superiority for AEW and lose sight of the fact that they're really not competing against the A game. They're competing against the C game for WWE. And if you acknowledge that and embrace that and maintain, you know, the, the underdog kind of vibe that AEW has, because everybody wants to see the underdog win. Everybody will get behind the underdog. That's what makes it fun. That's what makes a battle fun. That's what makes a Monday night war made the Monday night wars fun was that, that competition. But in the position that AEW is in now, man, the biggest advantage they have is the disadvantage they right. have 
embrace the disadvantage, embrace the, the underdog status. And you will find, and this is subconscious. This is psychology. Now this isn't, you know, science. This is just gut feelings and, and human emotion and human psychology. But if you embrace the fact that you're an underdog, quit pounding the fucking drum every time you, you know, if you're a Brian Alvarez and obviously you've got relationships and friends and things like that, which is cool at AEW, but rather than banging that drum and bragging about it, you know, be humble about it, maintain that underdog status. And you'll find that you'll be able to grow your audience, which is something that AEW is going to need to do in order to be successful long-term grow that audience year after year, after year, after year, so that at some point you do become a viable competitor on a level playing field, you know, with, with either raw or SmackDown. Um, you, you look at what Nitro did now back up again, look what we did with Nitro. You know, it was just a matter of months again, going head to head Monday night, prime time. It was just a matter of months bef- before we started overtaking WWE Nitro started out with whatever the rating was, probably in the mid twos, I'm guessing, if memory serves me. And within 18 months, we're at fours and fives. That's growth. That's not a flat line. That's not a deterioration of audience over time. That's explosive growth. That's what the business needs, not just AEW, the business needs that kind of explosive growth growth, and that energy that comes with the Coke and Pepsi kind of battle. But don't try to be Coke versus Pepsi and, and until you're capable of doing it. Embrace the fact that you're still trying. Make people get behind you. Make people want you to succeed as opposed to starting to go. And they will. I'm telling you, they will. The more you start banging your drum, if you're an AEW fan and you start banging that drum, how much better AEW is than WWE or how much better it performs, I should say, than WWE, the sooner people are going to start going, yeah, but not really. Yeah, but that's not true. And once too many people start thinking or seeing through that, you lose that underdog status. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm off my soapbox. I don't mean to give out free advice like this and hopefully, you know, nobody's listening to it anyway, so it doesn't really matter, but it is because I really want to see the business elevate and become bigger. So everybody benefits fans benefit. You and I benefit Tony Khan benefits, Vince McMahon benefits, our buddy, Bruce Pritchard, wherever he is. he, he benefits. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, where's Bruce? What's up with Bruce? He's on a milk carton, but, uh, as you and I are speaking, uh, we're supposed to record in two hours. So, uh, it'll be, it'll be nice to hear from Bruce. I hope he's well, I I do want to tag on two things here that you you brought up one. I don't think AEW is sort of beating their chest. You, you, You made it a point to specifically name drop Brian Alvarez and boy, that's a topic for another day. Uh, but. Tony Khan's not saying, oh, we're bigger than WWE. We're better than WWE. That's not his speed at all. But I understand you're saying sometimes just the narrative online, be it from. No, it, it, no and I thank you, Conrad, for pointing that out. Cause I'm, again, I'm not, I'm, I'm not throwing darts at, at Tony Khan at all. Right. I just respect the hell out of Tony. And I like him personally. Yeah. The little bit that I've gotten to know him. He's a great guy to be around. He's fun to be around. He's got great energy Yes, and, and passion. So by no means am I being critical of, of Tony or things that he said it up because he hasn't yep. been guilty of what I'm talking to you about, but it's 
the people, it's the people in the orbit around him. Some of them are closer than others. Just be careful. You know, Chris Jericho, be careful. You know, don't bang that drum yet. Bang the drum when it's time to bang the drum. Be an underdog. And I'm certainly not talking about Tony. I respect the fuck out of Chris. And I, I really, really like Chris as a, as a friend and as a performer. Um, this is just me being honest and having been through the battles mm-hmm. at a level that matters, I guess, to a certain degree. Um, don't make the same mistakes I made. You know, be careful. I also want to mention, I know you were just sort of freestyling, but raw hadn't been around 10 years when nitro was created, you know, raw was less than three years old, but still to your point, Oh, okay. It was still very much the brand. It was the franchise and, and you debuted September 4th, 1995 with nitro. The first time nitro would beat raw was June 17th, 1996. So roughly nine months later. So, you know, you, uh, your baby was born nine months later. Uh, and, and you start, you know, chopping up those victories, which is a big deal. And obviously at this point that hasn't happened yet. And so it is kind of interesting in hindsight, you know, there's a, there's a whole thing, you know, people like to say online, oh, he's been gotten to let's put that in context here. Billionaire Ted skits happened just a few months after nitro kicked off. Nitro had not yet beaten raw in the ratings. But Vince McMahon sort of did an about face for years and years. The WWF's MO was don't acknowledge it. Whatever happened somewhere else doesn't matter. Doesn't exist. We're the only wrestling company. I mean, it was never acknowledged and now they're doing about face and make it sort of personal for Ted Turner and Hulk Hogan and the macho man. And it wasn't because he was losing. That's the thing that is just fascinating to me. I understand like the the old adage is number one, never talks about number two, right? So whenever somebody's rolling out their new latest and greatest smartphone, they always say, oh, it's better than iPhone. They even put it in the ads. Like if you've got a new, you know, car, you want to push out there, it gets more gas mileage than the Toyota Camry. You never hear Toyota say, boy, we're beating the shit out of Kia. Like that doesn't happen. (laughs) Like number one, doesn't talk about number two, but Vince McMahon here is still the uh, the, the pod Piper, he's the man and, and, and he has the big show and he has the big brand and, uh, he's established and you're trying to fight from underneath and he's picking a fight with you. I, I'm just fascinated by that because he never did it before. Vince McMahon was gotten to, right? I, I don't know. Have you ever discussed that with Bruce? I, I mean, obviously, you know, as you just so elegantly pointed out, this was a major departure Yeah, uh, for Vince McMahon. He major departure for Vince. I'm curious as to why, what, what precipitated that? What was the catalyst? What made Vince do something that typically he didn't do and, and essentially had written the book uh, about how to promote, you know, wrestling and what to do and what not to do. You know, at that point, as you pointed out, Vince was, he was the King of the Hill. Yeah. What made him reverse course? I wonder if it was, I kind of think it's personal, you know, I was just going to say, do you think he took it personally? Do you think he took the Hulk Hogan thing personally and took Randy Savage personally and Ted Turner? That's something we don't talk about a lot here, but Ted and Vince had, you know, interactions and issues going back more than 10 years, you know, the whole black Saturday thing. And, and he was finally on TBS and he thought he would be the only wrestling show there. Uh, fans hated it. 
Uh, Ted Turner was not happy with the ratings. So he essentially gave two other promotions time on TBS after Vince had just paid through the nose for it, thinking he was going to be the only show on the superstation. It was just a mess. And I think even back then, Ted and Vince just did not get along fast forward 10 years or not even 10 years, fast forward five years, whatever it was, uh, events. I'm in the wrestling business, that famous phone call that we've heard about over and over. And of course, Vince says, well, I'm in the entertainment business or whatever the shit, the conversation was. But the point is I think he took it personal with Ted and, and clearly he took it personal with Hogan. Uh, this is just on the heels of all the steroid stuff. And then the way Randy left. And maybe he took that personal and there's lots of rumor and innuendo, depending on what you believe, but it is fascinating that those three guys are really the only three who are even featured in these vignettes, you know, the billionaire Ted and the huckster and the nacho man, and they're not beating him. It's just their mere existence that they, that he doesn't have it. Damn it. They don't work for me. It's just fascinating. He showed Vince showed his ass yes. the way that up until this point, he never had before. So I guess it, you know, and I'd be curious to talk to Bruce about this, even if it's offline. Um, I'd be curious to know what, what, like I said, what was the catalyst? What made him want to do it? And I can only guess it. Like you just said, it's gotta be personal. There's so much in the other, you know, the thing that bothered me about it and maybe we'll get to this, but I was really disappointed that he didn't have, an Eric Bischoff character. In those <laughs> I, 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 I felt very slighted. It's like, well, what about me yeah. Boy, over here? <laughs> Great stuff. And you know, at, at least on television, it hadn't been acknowledged yet that you were really running things. You were just mm-hmm. in the lead voice on nitro and, and, and one of the announcers. So adfreeshows.com, the fastest growing wrestling community on the planet wants you to be part of the family. You know that you have been considering it for a while now. You already enjoy the content Conrad, Eric, Bruce, Tony, JR, and Arn put out on a weekly basis. So take the plunge. Sign up today to see and hear your favorite podcasts on video, join interactive experiences with past and current wrestlers, and start building friendships with people just like you. Dax Harwood from the FTR sat down with Arn Anderson for a live interactive event with our top guys just a few short days ago. And here is a peek into some of what you could be witnessing live once you make that choice. And we got the tag belts only. I can, I've never said this before. This is just to you guys. The only reason we got the tag belts was to make Enzo and cast stars. That's it. And then somewhere along the way, Hunter decided, he, he, he said, man, these guys are great. He became fans of me and Cash. Um, and then so he gave us a little more focus. We didn't drop the tag belts to Enzo and Cass, you know, at, at London or at Roadblock. Um, he let us keep them. And we primed them, not because of our efforts, but because of all four of our efforts, we primed them for the main roster. And they went to the main roster. If that's not good enough, what better way to kick off your Royal Rumble weekend than joining us now? so that you can be a part of Mike Chioda's Royal Rumble watch-along event. It's Saturday, January 30th at noon Eastern time as we watch John Cena, Brock Lesnar, and Seth Rollins in a triple threat match from Royal Rumble 2015. That's right. You watch the event with Mike, then hang around for a Q&A session where he answers your questions. So what are you waiting on? Join the family. Go to adfreeshows.com right now 
and gain immediate access to everything mentioned and so much more. Of course, all ad-free. So sign up now and become part of the fastest growing wrestling community today at adfreeshows.com. adfreeshows.com the fastest growing wrestling community on the planet wants you to be part of the family you know that you have been considering it for a while now you already enjoy the content conrad eric bruce tony jr and arn put out on a weekly basis so take the plunge sign up today to see and hear your favorite podcasts on video join interactive experiences with past and current wrestlers and start building friendships with people just like you. Dax Harwood from the FTR sat down with Arn Anderson for a live interactive event with our top guys just a few short days ago. And here is a peek into some of what you could be witnessing live once you make that choice. And we got the tag belts only. I can, I've never said this before. This is just to you guys. The only reason we got the tag belts was to make Enzo and cast stars. That's it. And then somewhere along the way, Hunter decided, he, he, he said, man, these guys are great. He became fans of me and Cash. Um, and then so he gave us a little more focus. We didn't drop the tag belts to Enzo and Cass, you know, at, at London or at Roadblock. Um, he let us keep them. And we primed them, not because of our efforts, but because of all four of our efforts, we primed them for the main roster. And they went to the main roster. If that's not good enough, what better way to kick off your Royal Rumble weekend than joining us now so that you can be a part of Mike Kyoto's Royal Rumble Watch Along event. It's Saturday, January 30th at noon Eastern time as we watch John Cena, Brock Lesnar, and Seth Rollins in a triple threat match from Royal Rumble 2015. That's right. You watch the event with Mike, then hang around for a Q&A session where he answers your questions. So what are you waiting on? Join the family. Go to adfreeshows.com right now and gain immediate access to everything mentioned and so much more. Of course, all ad-free. So sign up now and become part of the fastest growing wrestling community today at adfreeshows.com. Let's talk about some other stuff from The Observer. This is a fun episode. Um after a televised skit, which implied that WCW doesn't have a legitimate steroid policy, WCW responded with threats of a lawsuit. Let's take a timeout before we even continue. When you see that the skit, and we, we could probably do a whole show on these, but the steroid thing was such a hot topic for the WWF. Were you surprised that they tried to even go there on TV? Because it feels like something to me you would just totally want to avoid like, man, that's in the rear view mirror. I need to get out of here. I don't want anything to do with that. Maybe it's more telling about Vince, I guess that he decided to double down and sort of challenge WCW on it. How do you feel about that? I think, uh, man, really want to, you know, make this disclaimer very, very clear to anybody listening to the show or who subsequently writes about what we're saying on this show without listening to it very carefully. That being said, disclaimer out of the way, uh, I have no idea what makes Vince tick. Right. I, I really don't. I can, like most of us, 
I think other than probably Bruce and his wife, Linda and Stephanie and to a degree, Paul Levesque and Jerry McDivitt, (laughs) I I think you'd find, you'd be hard pressed to find anybody that you could sit down with and say, well, let me tell you how Vince really thinks. Right. He's, he's a complicated, very complex individual. Um, but I think in Vince's mind, he, because of the steroid trial, he convinced himself and obviously the court. This is me being really careful about what I say. <laughs> because I've, I've, I've had an opportunity to look at some interesting details about that steroid trial and what really went down. Um, Let her rip, Tater Chip. No, 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 no. And I'm believe me, I'm not afraid of WWE at this point on this subject, but there's other things going on that I have to be aware of. Um, I'm my guess. If I had to, you know, try to explain what may have happened is that Vince convinced himself along with a jury or judges and everybody else that he was, he was the victim. He, he was the victim of a government conspiracy and it almost put him in jail. I mean, let's be clear. Had things gone the other way, WWE would have been an asterisk in the history books of professional wrestling and Vince McMahon wouldn't be able to vote or own a weapon right? because he would have been a convicted felon. So when Vince came out of that, I think he felt so empowered and above it. And because he convinced himself and everybody else that he was a victim, that his perspective on the issue was not one based in reality or what one would consider an average or, or what you could expect a normal person to, to react to, or, 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 or one, that a, nor- a way that a normal person would react after the fact. Vince convinced himself and everybody else he was a victim. And as a victim, you, you didn't do anything wrong. Right. You're guilt-free. So it was easy, I think, for Vince or someone like Vince to look at the situation in WCW and not feel any qualms about doubling down because he was a victim. Mm. That's my guess. Well, it's in the observer here. Then with Bischoff defending the policy in place and pointing remarks back at the WWF by noting that three current WWF headliners without any names being mentioned had failed steroid tests while in WCW. Of course, that plan of action wasn't well thought out since none of the three performers were ever suspended for steroid use while with WCW. And it's believed that all three headline WCW pay-per-view shows immediately after such a positive test result. Of course, the names weren't revealed, but it's well known that Sid Udy was one of those guys. What's your strategy here, man? When, when he comes after you for steroids and you say three of your top guys failed steroid tests here, what's the thinking there? It's just an observation on based on fact, right? You know, I mean, for, for WWE to have implied that, you know, steroids were a problem in WCW and not in WWE when there are active wrestlers in W or there were active wrestlers in WWE that had steroid issues in WCW, I thought was 
you know, it was hypocrisy. And I was simply pointing that out, you know, to Dave's point, well, where they weren't fired for that. Keep in mind, you know, back in the nineties, when you had a contract, those contracts were written at a time that steroid policies were being developed. Right. Those contracts were being written at a time when the law wasn't even clear on steroids. There was some ambiguity as to whether, you know, steroids were illegal or not, you know, going into the, to the, the trial, you know, with Vince McMahon and WWE. So this was, you know, early stages. Yes. In professional sports, it was more um, codified and it was, there was more of a policy in place because sports is sports and especially the Olympics and things like that, where, you know, steroid use and performance enhancement drugs were higher on everybody's list to do. Look at what major major league baseball was going through at the time. Their policies were all over the place and ineffective NFL. Come on. I still wonder today how, how, how well those policies are being adhered to and how strict they really are. You know, they're not come on. Well, no, I know I'm not, I know they're not, but I don't have any proof. So I don't want to come out and say, Look at steroids are rampant in the NFL. I'm not going to say that. I don't know that that's true. I don't have any proof that that's well, true. Let's change the word steroid with performance enhancing drugs and just understand that shit's everywhere. I do it's want to, everywhere. I do want to ask this though. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by different takes on this. And Arn and I had a conversation that really shocked me that he was so open and forthright about it. Uh, but he was, uh, by the way, Arn drops here on Westwood one on Tuesdays. Where do you stand on steroids and sports entertainment? Like Arn Anderson thinks and, and, and can argue it's entertainment. It's not physical hand-to-hand combat. You know, there aren't, you know, traditional winners and losers like there are in sports. You know, it's not, I put something in my body and it may help me hurt you more. That's not what wrestling is all about. And who gives a shit? Uh, and I think a lot of the guys feel the same way, but it's one of those things you just can't say out loud because people expect you to be oh, steroids are bad, blah, blah, blah. But this is not legitimate sports. This is not a competition. Yes, there is athleticism, but it's entertainment and they're not necessarily running around drug testing everybody on a Hollywood set or a lot of your action heroes. Well, they'd be doing something else. Yeah, some of the highest paid uh, actors in the world wouldn't be the highest paid actors in the world. Look, I have no problem. If people want to use growth hormone, for example, which to my knowledge, and I'm no expert, is very hard to detect in a drug test. Yeah. I mean, it's just, if it's at least last time I looked into it a couple of years ago, it was impossible. It's very expensive to test. Yeah. Yeah. It's expensive and your ability to detect it is, is pretty tough. I have no, if people in general forget, okay, let's put sports, professional sports, athletic competition and amateur sports aside, put that aside. And let's just talk about life in general and entertainment in particular. If life in, in, in life in general, people want to take steroids, whether it be testosterone or growth hormone or any of the other kind of adjuncts to, to those hormones. Because usually if you're taking, for example, testosterone, you also have to take, you know, another prescription or two to kind of get the, the net effect, if you will, of testosterone. And for, you know, for full disclosure, I take testosterone. I'm 65 years old. 
And my doctor prescribes it to me. Right. You know, if, if you go to a legitimate doctor, and here's the key, if you go to a legitimate doctor and they monitor your blood panels, they're watching all kinds of different, the, the, uh, the, the levels of all kinds of different things in your blood system. And to optimally, uh, optimally, uh, benefit not only from a particular hormone like testosterone in my case, but all of the other natural occurring hormones in your blood system. You want those to be at optimal levels. You know, I want my hormone levels at my age of 65 years old to be what they would be when I was 35, not just testosterone. And obviously I am no bodybuilder, right? I'm not, I'm not doing it to look better on TV. I'm doing it because I truly believe that the quality of my life, my energy level, my ability to continue doing things that physically I enjoy doing, even they're, they're not athletic things necessarily, but I feel better when I'm in an optimal hormone balance. So for people like me who aren't even in the entertainment business that just want to feel better and you're going, you're working with the doctor and you're, and you're monitoring, you know, all of the other things in your blood and your health, I think hormone therapy is a wonderful advance in science and health truly is. I mean, women have been using hormone therapy for, you know, decades and decades and decades because of the natural things that occur as women get older. Men, it's a relatively new thing. And it started out as a performance enhancing thing or, you know, for bodybuilders and all that. That's where the abuse came from. But all of the research points to, you know, a legitimate um, prescribed and monitored hormone therapy for men and for women is a healthy thing that can help you live longer and, and enjoy the time that you do have as you're getting older. Um, so I think, you know, steroids, hormones, whatever you want to call them, generally speaking, if they're prescribed by a doctor and they're legitimate and they're well monitored are a great thing. Not only just okay, if you want to do it, I think they're a beneficial thing that will help people live longer. Now that's generally speaking in the entertainment business. I'm sorry. But are you going to look around at some of the people, you know, we see them in, 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 you know, a people magazine, Oh, watch it in six weeks. He's transformed from this to this for an action, you know, for part of an action movie. I'm sorry. You know, if you're 35 or 40 years old, and you've never worked out in your life. You're not going to be able to make that transition in six months or eight months or even a year or a year and a half. You're not going to pack on, 30 pounds of muscle in 18 months as you're getting ready for a movie without performance enhancing drugs. I don't give a fuck who you are. Right. Quit lying about it. Be honest about it. Everybody knows anyway, but to your point, I think in, in wrestling, any form of sports entertainment, if it's not amateur athletics or professional athletics, um, people should be allowed to take whatever performance enhancing drugs that are prescri- that are legitimate prescribed by a doctor you know get educated i probably know i get i get my blood done four times a year i get a complete blood panel i can tell you what my psa <laughs> prostate specific androns i can tell you what my psa level was in 10 years ago compared to what it is now that's an important thing to know my grandfather died of prostate cancer okay so prostate cancer is something that 
because it's, you know, you can inherit that. I'm paying very close attention to that. Well, right. because I'm on testosterone, because I'm working with a doctor, I get a, I get my blood panel done. And that's one of the first things that I look at. I know exactly what my cholesterol is, the good, bad, good and bad cholesterol. I know all these things because I'm engaged with a doctor and he's prescribed hormones for me. And I'm very interested in this aspect of my well-being. Do I think that's a bad thing? Absolutely not. If I happen to be, you know, out there in the ring performing, should I be disqualified from being as healthy as I can be because I'm in professional wrestling? No. So I agree with Arn. I, I may agree for probably, in, in essence, the same reasons. But I may articulate them differently. But I, I, I think hormone therapy, once you get to be 35, 40, 45 years old, should be, if you can afford it, because it's not cheap, should be, you know, as much a part of your daily life is, you know, diet and exercise. Yeah. I mean, Jim Ross is a big advocate for that. And a lot of guys, you know, so it's not a secret, but, uh, I do think it's a, a conversation worth having. Let's talk a little bit about your stance on nitro. As we mentioned earlier, your lead voice on nitro in this era, talk to us a little bit about the way you were attacking the company, uh, the WWF. I mean, you're giving spoilers and things like that. I mean, you're you're full bore, you know, we're trying to, um, compete, but when the nacho and the huckster and the billionaire Ted thing start to happen, it feels like you pull it back a little bit. Is that what's the strategy? What's the thinking there at the time? Uh, well, there, there was no, um, second guessing. I wasn't being asked to pull it back by anybody above me uh, to the contrary, you know, when, Ted saw the billionaire skits. He laughed his ass off. Right. He, he, he got a bigger kick out of it than probably Vince did when he saw the final cut before they aired. Um, so there was no pressure on me to, to back off. I think if anything, I may have mitigated, you know, myself to a degree uh, and slowed myself down a bit just because I didn't want to overdo it or be perceived to be overreacting to the skits. In a sense, I didn't want to sell it. And if I would have amped it up even more or kicked it up a couple notches, um, it would have been perceived, I think, by the audience that, oh, man, they're getting to Bischoff. Those yeah. billionaire Ted skits are getting to him. Oh, man, now look what he's doing. You know, what I did, you know, giving away the finishes and, you know, some of the cocky, smarmy shit that I did was intentional. It was by design. It was designed to piss people off, including some of the WWE's fans. I wanted them to be pissed off. I wanted them to come over and see what all the fucking noise was about. I wanted them to go over to Nitro and say, I watch Nitro and yeah, that show. Oh, it didn't suck. Actually, it's pretty fucking good. That's what I, that's why I did it. But I think to have amped it up even further would have had diminishing returns. So by now, you know, that Eric and I absolutely love our dogs. I'm posting pictures of my dogs, Ginger and baby on Instagram all the time over at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad Thompson. Of course, at E Bischoff on Twitter is where you'll see pictures of his dog, Nikki all the time. And let me give you a little pro tip. Solid gold is the way to go. If you really love your dog, did you know that up to 80% of the immune system is influenced by the gut or that supporting the immune system through proper diet and digestive health enables pets to better fight environmental allergies. Solid gold is passionate about gut health 
because a healthy digestive system positively impacts the immune system and overall wellness of pets. Solid Gold was the first holistic pet food company in America, started back in 74 by Sissy McGill. You see, Sissy was a trailblazer and a pioneer who disrupted a male-dominated industry and created a natural pet food before it was cool. Sissy was inspired by European pet food and the fact that European Great Danes live longer than their American counterparts. Her first recipe, Hundenflocken, has now provided high-quality nutrition and digestive health for over 20 generations of dogs. Solid Gold's nutritional platform is inspired by their founding belief that high-quality food is the best way to impact our pet's mind, body, and spirit. For over 45 years, Solid Gold has revolutionized the holistic pet food category, and they have a recipe for any dog or cat's dietary needs, including healthy whole grain and grain-free options, wet food, supplements like sea meal and 100% human-grade bone broth for dogs, Solid Gold Foods are different because they cleanse the digestive system with whole superfoods, they balance with living probiotics, and they fuel with omega-3 and 6 fatty acids. They all support gut health and nourish your pet inside and out. Eric and I really believe in this. So does Bruce, by the way. Right now, to see the Solid Gold Deal of the Week, go to SolidGoldPet.com slash 83 weeks. That's SolidGoldPet.com slash 83 weeks to see the Deal of the Week. Remember solidgoldpet.com slash 83 weeks. One of the things I wanted to bring up is there's a quote in here. Um, we were talking about Vince McMahon. Here's a guy who spent the better part of three years in court because he has a problem and had a problem. And you knock the gold dust gimmick saying, quote, Vince, if that's the epitome of your creativity, I feel sorry for you. And then you praise Dustin Rhodes as a wrestler and as a person and said, it was embarrassing that. McMahon would try to do that to him. And he said, uh, you know, you did the whole, I feel sorry for you line when talking about the billionaire Ted match at WrestleMania, because that's a thing they were teasing that they were going to do a billionaire Ted match at WrestleMania quote. I feel sorry for Vince McMahon. If he has to hire imposters to draw a number on his pay-per-views. And he finished by saying that McMahon is the Vern Gagne of the nineties and his time <laughs> has come and passed. Wow. Your response? Kind of what a little shit I was. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't, I'm not taking any of it back. You know, Vince, some could argue that Vince is very stubborn. That's really the analogy that I was drawing when I said that. And I've said this before, you know, Vince McMahon is his own animal. He is one of the most unique people I have ever come to know, even a little bit. And certainly have worked for even a little bit. Um, But there are some similarities between Vern and Vince. And I think one of them is the steadfast, stubborn view of what the product should be, despite what all other all other indications may suggest be different. Vince is going to do things the way Vince wants to do things, and the way he he the Vince's creative vision is unique to Vince McMahon. And come hell or high water, he's going to execute his vision. Right. There's a lot of similarities between Vince and Vern Gagne in that respect. Before we move on, 
do you recall Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan's reaction to the nacho man and the huckster? I mean, you said that Ted laughed his ass off at the billionaire Ted skit. What did, what did Hulk and Randy think of those and, and the knocks on the, the whole steroid stuff? Neither one of them sold it to me. Um, I was, I was not as close to Randy on a personal level as I was to Hulk. Uh, I mean, we got along great, but we didn't hang out. You know, we didn't talk two or three times a week or anything like that. And, and I did with Hulk. We did, we did hang out just personally. You know, my family would go down to Tampa and have dinner with his family. And so the, the relationship was broader than just a working relationship. And that wasn't necessarily the case with Randy. So Randy, and I think his personality was such, Randy would never sell anything. I mean, he'd get hot, you know, if, if it was business and it was a backstage situation and there were creative differences or he didn't feel like, you know, someone was putting forth the effort that they should put forth and things like that. Um, yeah, you could get an emotional reaction out of Randy to be sure. But with something like this, Randy wouldn't have sold it to me. I, I just don't think he would have sold it to anybody. Hulk, you know, because I did know him a little bit better. I think Hulk was more intrigued by it. He wasn't, he wasn't hurt by it. He wasn't angry about it. He wasn't embarrassed by it, but I think more than anything, um, he was probably wrestling with no pun intended, you know, the, the dramatic change of approach that we talked about earlier, where he's mm-hmm. got, don't ever acknowledge the audience or don't ever, don't ever acknowledge the competition. And here he is selling his ass off. So I think that was probably more of the types of conversations that we had as opposed to, you know, him Hulk having, you know, hurt feelings or, or being angry or anything like that. It was more curiosity than anything. Let's um, let's move on a little bit and let's talk about some other news and notes happening in WCW. Here's one. I didn't recall. The Iron Sheik was backstage looking for work. That's what's happened before, and he hasn't been hired. Of course, the Iron Sheik, before you were in charge, had a hilarious situation with WCW, I think, where they decided they didn't want to use him. They sent him home, and his contract accidentally rolled over. So they just kept <laughs> paying him and uh, occasionally brought him in here or there. But good you, for him. Yeah, good for him. But Hulk Hogan's here now, brother. Uh, did, did Hogan have a soft spot for Sheiky baby? Were you even remotely considering, Hey, what if we put him with the dungeon of doom or some shit? No, I, I, I honestly, I don't even remember Sheik being backstage and I don't remember there ever being a conversation about possibly bringing him in. Certainly there was no conversation, you know, with Hulk about either Hulk wanting him to come in or not wanting to come in. I, I, I until just now, I, I, if somebody would said, Eric, I'll bet you a million dollars that she, you know, was backstage at one point at Nitro and was trying to get a job. I would have bet against that. I just right. don't remember it. Let's talk about Baywatch. There's an episode that's going to come out, uh, I believe, uh, in February. And I think it was shot the prior July, but Baywatch is going to feature Hogan, Sting, Savage, Flair, Sullivan, Vader, uh, all the cast and crew here. Of course, by the time it actually airs, Vader's not there. He's gone. How did the whole Baywatch thing come together? And just to add a little context. So everybody listening knows this, cause we do have some younger listeners. Baywatch was the biggest show in the world. I know that sounds silly in hindsight, but when you talk about syndication, not just domestic, but international, it was the brand, right? Yeah. Baywatch was a juggernaut in, in syndication. Um, 
I think they, I don't even want to try to remember the kind of viewers that they had, especially internationally, but <laughs> David Hasselhoff, man. Right. He was, he was huge. And I know we, we, we say this as part of like a joke, but he was huge in Germany. He was huge in Japan, but D- David Hasselhoff was a mega, mega star in, in Germany and in the UK, but primarily Germany. And Baywatch just came along at the right time, at the right place. It was that slice of America um, that the international audience, you know, it's kind of like how they perceived all of America to be, you know, like Southern California. You know, it's like when you when you talk to kids in school about, you know, Holland, they think everybody wears wooden shoes and grows tulips and has a windmill in their backyard. Well, you know, Baywatch, I think, to a lot of people around the world represented what America was really like. So it was a huge hit, massive hit. Doug Schwartz and Bonin. What was Bonin's first name? I can't remember. Maybe Steve Bonin. I'm not sure. But Doug Schwartz is the guy that I I dealt with most regularly. They were partners and they created uh, Baywatch. And they also created Thunder in Paradise to be kind of a Baywatch-esque spinoff without it being a spinoff. So that's how I came to know everybody over at um, the Baywatch team. Uh, Kevin, oh, Kevin's name will come to me in just a little bit. He's still one of the, he's now he's probably one of the more successful uh, executives in Hollywood. I think he runs Lionsgate Entertainment right now. I'll think of his name before the end of the show, I hope. Uh, he, was a, he was a young producer at the time, and he also worked on the Thunder in Paradise show. So it was just kind of a, it was a very easy thing to, to accommodate. You know, Baywatch was interested in having some wrestlers on the show. Obviously, Hulk was associated with WCW. I'd gotten to know Doug Schwartz pretty well um, and the rest of the Baywatch team. So it was something that came together with like two or three phone calls. It was very easy. Let's talk about the, uh, the NAPI convention. Of course, the WWF has a presence there and Meltzer would write. They had a very impressive booth showing a cycle of clips, including some great videos they produced about Shawn Michaels, who we know in a couple of months is going to be their world champion, but also showed billionaire Ted skits, which most felt were out of place in that environment. All of the WWFs and WCW's big names were there at one point or another, but Hogan and Savage drew the most commotion of anyone. The only WWF promoter that I saw or performer rather that I saw any lines for was Shawn Michaels. And the lines for him were a lot shorter than the lines for pizza. <laughs> a lot to unpack there. Do you remember them showing billionaire Ted skits as part of their booth? I mean, maybe you didn't see it or do you see it? Do you no. listen the Vince McMahon that I know would, would want to try to poke the bear, but the, the Eric Bischoff, I know would hear that he was trying to do that and just strut ass over there and take a look. You didn't? No, I didn't. And not because I didn't want to, I don't know if my schedule would have allowed it. And by the way, going to nappy at that point of time was a little bit like going to three super bowls in terms of just the crowd, the size. Yeah. I mean, it was, you, you had to spend the better part of a day just to get there, get through security, get your ticket and get out onto the floor. And I didn't really have the time or the interest really. I just had too much other stuff going on. I, I really wasn't interested enough in it, to be honest. So I didn't see it. The, um, I don't know that you've heard the story, but Bruce has told the story on something to wrestle about this particular convention. 
that Vince McMahon wanted to plan like a, a run in of sorts on your booth and go try to pick a fight with Hogan and Savage and yourself and have I'd have kicked his ass right there on the floor. Are you kidding me? Talk about controversy, creating cash. Oh, huge dude. God, that would, even if I would have had to just sneak up behind him and sucker punch him, I would have done it. I mean, that would have been awesome. Let's talk about another major meeting that happened that same weekend. Uh, this is such a fascinating era for WCW. And I know we're guys, we're over an hour and 16 minutes into the show. And we haven't gotten to the show, but the context around the show is more fascinating to me than talking about Elizabeth, but we'll get there. Uh, speaking of new Japan, Bischoff met with Anoki on January 24th in Las Vegas. Anoki managed to get Paco Alonzo and Antonio Pena together at a meeting earlier in the week in Las Vegas and got a meeting with Fidel Castro about putting on an international wrestling show in Cuba over the next year or so. Anoki while in Mexico talked about running a show at Azteca stadium, which had a capacity of 130,000. And he wanted to do that in either 96 or 97. Anyway, he tried to get Bischoff and McMahon at the same meeting in Las Vegas, but the WWF declined. Although Anoki was supposed to have a separate meeting with a WWF representative. Bischoff agreed to send Anoki wrestlers for his May 18th show in Los Angeles. Do you recall this sort of meeting of the minds? Do you remember meeting with Anoki here? I don't. I don't. I mean, by this point, I had a pretty good relationship with Anoki and, and most of the people at New Japan that were instrumental in any kind of co-promotions uh, here in the States or outside of the States, as evidenced by, you know, the year previously having gone to North Korea with Anoki. So um, it, it would not have been unusual or difficult or that newsworthy for me to have had a meeting with Anoki. But I'm not saying it didn't happen, but it certainly, if it did, it was an inconsequential meeting that was more social than anything. Let's talk about Johnny B. Bad. We know that he's going to jump ship. We know he's going to become the wild man, Mark Marrow, and uh, have a little bit of a push there in the WWF before things start to come off the rails a bit. But the day before this particular Clash of the Champions, as we mentioned, there was a Nitro on January 22nd, and the Dark Match. Had the giant finish Johnny B. Bad in eight seconds with a choke slam. And it's in the observer that Mero was none too happy about this. In January here, did you already know Mero was unhappy and leaving? I mean, is that the thinking of let's get the giant over and squash him in eight seconds? Because eight seconds is that's sending a message, right? I don't know that it's sending a message. It can be interpreted that, interpreted as such. But he was the giant. Oh, yeah. And we were getting him over. Mark Merrow was all of five foot 11 and maybe 220 pounds. So in the ring next to Paul White or the giant, was it, should it have been something that people could perceive as, you know, vindictiveness or just, you know, kicking him into balls on the way out the door? I don't know. Um, as to whether or not I knew for sure that Mark was leaving or not, I'm, I'm sure that I did because I remember having a conversation. Now, I'm not sure about the timing, but I'm pretty certain that I did know because Mark was professional enough and man enough to come to me and tell me, you know, in a very, you know, constructive, professional manner. 
Uh, and I think he told me uh, we ran into each other at an airport. We may have been on our way to a show or something. And Mark saw me in Atlanta at the airport. He may have been on the same flight as I had for all I know, but he pulled me aside and said, Eric, I need to talk to you. And I just want to give you a heads up. Here's, here's what I'm going to do. And here's why. And it was, you know, he was a little bit um, anxious about it, or, or I don't want to say upset, but there was a little bit of emotion involved because I think it was a hard decision for Mark. It was probably not an easy thing for Mark to do. From my point of view, it was not, there was no, you know, I'm going to show him, you're going to go to the competition. I'm going to bury you. Cause I've never believed that that matters. In fact, if anything, going back to what we were talking about with regard to being the underdog and a sympathetic baby face, if anything, that would get talent over more. If you just obviously and intentionally kind of kicked him in the balls on the way out the door. It'll create sympathy with that particular talent's fan base. Why would I want to enhance that if they're going somewhere else? I've always firmly believed that. It's why when Bret Hart, you know, was concerned about not having the belt when he was coming over to WCW. And I told Bret specifically on the phone, I remember where I was standing, we were having the conversation on a payphone, no less. That's how long ago this conversation took place. But I said, Brett, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter if they try to bury you. It just doesn't fucking matter. You're Bret Hart. And, and I felt the same way about our talent. So I, I don't know what the logic was or the story was. Probably it was nothing more complicated or nefarious or devious than just, okay, Johnny's leaving. We need to, we need to get the giant over. Johnny's a pretty important character. Let's really get him over. Kind of like Brock, Kofi Kingston. Was that, did that even reach eight seconds? I don't know. Might have been less than that. So I, I certainly it wasn't punishment for Kofi when they, when they used Brock in that manner. Um, they just needed to get Brock over in right. a very, very powerful way at that particular time. So that decision was made. It certainly wasn't out of disrespect for Kofi. I don't think I was there. I never got that impression. It was just business. And I think that was probably the case with Johnny B. Ben. Let's talk about the ratings for this clash of the champions. There's a lot that's going to happen here. We're going to talk about it all. Elizabeth is in WCW. The road warriors are back. Kevin green of the Pittsburgh Steelers just days before he plays in the super bowl is here. Is that awesome? That that's so how cool. you use celebrity talent, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, get them while they're hot. You got a 4.5 rating and a 6.6 share. Boy, how many people would be tickled with a 4.5 rating today? Tickled. (laughs) (laughs) How many, how many, how many people would die of, you know, orgasmic overexposure. Can you die from an orgasm? Cause you might, if you got a 4.5 and a six share in today's television marketplace. Meltzer would say we only have a rating and not the total number of viewers at press time, but it would rank in the top three, most widely viewed wrestling TV shows in the history of TBS. The 4.5 rating is the same as the August 94 clash headlined by the first Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair television match. The 94 match did a 7.7 share and peaked with a phenomenal 6.7 rating. This show drew a more consistent number starting at a 3.8 and peaking with a 5.5. You had to be high fives all around when this comes out, right? Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. You know, we were, we're beginning to see 
and, and this is one of the reasons why, you know, when I overreact sometimes about people say, oh, the only good idea he had was the NWO. And the only reason WCW succeeded for a period of time was because of the NWO. Bullshit. We were on our way prior to the NWO. So for all of those of you who subscribe to the one trick pony theory with regard to my approach to WCW, go fuck yourself. Do a little bit of research. Listen to this show. Think a little bit. Um, We were well on our way and we were now granted, you know, 96 NWO certainly I won't even use the word accelerate catapulted us to a different level but we were already trending in that area in, in that direction. Steven's brand new deep Navy blue and sparkling 24 karat gold dip twinkle, twinkle roses here, but time is already running out because the brand new color sells out each year. Don't miss out. Imagine on Valentine's day when she opens this really cool gift box and outslides a blue rose trimmed in gold, you know, blue, the color of the sky, just before the sun sets. And you can start to see all the stars sparkling in the night sky. It's breathtaking. Go now to see this real 24 karat gold rose deeply dipped in real pure 24 karat gold with petals in this unique and dazzling blue color that mimics the stars in the sky exclusively available at Steven Singer jewelers, real jewelers, real roses, really dipped in pure 24 karat gold with a real lifetime guarantee. It's always the number one Valentine's day gift that lasts forever. It comes with your own free personal love note and ships fast and free to the real love of your life, your wife, your daughter, your sweetheart, and say, I'm lucky to have you in my life. Check out the entire collection of Steven's famous roses. Roses started only $59. Go right now to I hate Steven that's I hate Steven singer.com. Well, here's another line in here that boy, this is, I don't know what to make of this. Much of the credit has to be given to the curiosity about seeing what Elizabeth looked like in this case, bringing her back was a big winner in the ratings, but there is nothing that can be done to prolong the effect of it. People have seen her. The okay. Char- okay. Hang on. Hang on. One more sentence. Then, you, then I'll cut you loose here. The charisma or whatever it once was, isn't there anymore. And it's done. Okay. I'm tagging you in. Oh my God. This is me trying to keep my head from exploding. Watch the video, by the way, at adfreeshows.com. You can actually see Eric have an aneurysm live on camera. (laughs) How stupid can one person be not to have that thought because that stupidity speaks for itself, but how fucking stupid does Dave Meltzer have to be not to have the thought, right? He can't help it. He's just an idiot, but to go public with it is an error in judgment of profound proportion. The credit for the ratings of this show was because people were curious as to what Miss Elizabeth looked like. Dude, get on your meds or whatever it is you need to do. But Jesus, enough said. I rest my case, Your Honor. My, <laughs> I rest my case. The defendant has sentenced himself to life in stupidity jail. 
Let's talk about some ECW stuff here. Uh, it's in the observer. There had been, and still our plans talked about doing some kind of Elizabeth versus woman rivalry, but these type of plans change on a moment's notice. Although both are now in for regular roles. Woman was attempting to save her job in ECW, which would appear to have meant long-term plans had fallen through at least temporarily. Although by press time, it was supposed to be settled to make them both regular characters. Kevin Sullivan had offered to send Heyman talent, including public enemy. If his wife could keep her job and still do the WCW gig at this point, Heyman was planning on finishing her up on the January 27th Philly show and isn't interested in using any WCW performers unless they're willing to cleanly put over his guys on TV. There's been controversy regarding Nancy Sullivan since it was first learned about the plan to make her the quote unquote new Elizabeth and managed Savage in a feud against Hogan. This was before Hogan and Savage managed to woo the original Elizabeth back. Sullivan had all along strongly and vehemently denied the stories of her even considering going to WCW, despite continual word from WCW and other sources that she was headed in. As far as the Heyman situation goes, according to him, he was told that WCW wanted Nancy for the Vegas shots, but that Nancy turned the shots down. He was told that Hogan, who was the real booker, wanted Nancy to do the show. And the implication was made that Kevin's job would be in jeopardy if he didn't come through all along, Kevin and Nancy were attempting to work with Heyman. So Nancy could keep her ECW job. Other stories are entirely different that it was Kevin who put forth a lot of effort in politicking to get Nancy the gig when others in the company felt there were too many wives there already. Nancy, Nancy didn't leave for Las Vegas until early AM on Monday, rather than get to Vegas days earlier as most of the WCW crew had. And the reports over the weekend were that Nancy wasn't going to work the show at all. That was originally planned until she basically got written back into the storyline on the afternoon of nitro. So a lot to unpack here, but this is fascinating to me that Kevin Sullivan is trying to look out for his wife and wants his wife on both shows allegedly is trying to promise, you know, talent on both shows. And then of course, Meltzer can't help himself and says, well, Hogan's the real booker. I know you want to have an aneurysm to that. Tell me a little bit about what the fuck is going on with Elizabeth and Nancy here that makes the newsletter. N- nothing that you just communicated to me had any, any, not even the most remote association with fact or truth. Okay. I don't even know how to respond to it. It's so absurd. And so all over the map, I, I, I don't know if Dave was on drugs when he wrote it or if he needed to be on drugs when he wrote it. Um, I, I, I can't, I can't even react to anything as absurd as, is what you just read to me. Nothing. Kevin Sullivan didn't have the authority to promise anything to anybody. Right. So let's just start with that. You know, the shadow Hogan being the real booker, that's just Dave being a bitch and he, Dave's a bitch and everybody knows he's a little bitch and he's got a, he got a heart on for Hogan, whatever that's, that's been true forever. So I think any reasonable person can just automatically throw that out as a, is a Davism, but the rest of the machinations of the story and the, the, the bits and the pieces and the intertwining of all, I, he, brother, if he wasn't doing drugs, he probably should have been. Talk to me about Elizabeth. How does she get back in the fold at this point? She and Randy are separated, uh, or divorced. They're no longer together. They're not a couple. Um, but they, they were a big act for a long time. And you go back to sort of the heyday of the WWF. And, you know, she was associated with Hogan and Savage back in the whole mega powers thing. And then they exploded WrestleMania five did huge business, blah, blah, blah. 
who's pushing for her and what can you tell us about bringing her back? It was such a simple thing and it had nothing to do with anything that Dave suggested was true. There was no consideration at any point. There was never a conversation, a meaningful one. Now, maybe a couple of guys driving around in a car, smoking a bowl of weed, drinking a six pack of beers. Hey, what if we brought in Kevin's or Nancy Sullivan and made her rant, you know, and had her manage Randy. I'm not saying some, somebody didn't have a conversation. Nobody that meant anything had that conversation. Nobody that was remotely associated with creative or with me ever had that conversation. So, you know, could that conversation have happened, you know, in the backseat of a car going down the road from one town to another? Um, maybe. And maybe that got leaked to Dave and Dave took it as credible information. Maybe. Or maybe Dave just made it up. I don't know. But none of it, there was never any thought about having Randy being managed by another woman. Elizabeth and Randy maintained a very good relationship yeah. after the divorce. They were friends. Randy loved Elizabeth till the day she died. Um, there was no, just, I'm still, I guess I'm overreacting to something I shouldn't overreact to. It was this simple Conrad. I I'm guessing I wasn't on the phone call with Randy and Liz, but when Liz expressed, I think Liz was engaged actually. Yes, she was. She was engaged to, he was either a real estate developer or a dentist in Miami, a very successful one, by the way. Uh, they had a beautiful condo right downtown, you know, Miami. Um, and she was engaged to be married, but her and Randy had, had been talking. And I don't know if Randy suggested it, probably knowing Liz, it was Randy suggesting, Hey, you know, would you like to come back? Would you like to get back in the business? Evidently, you know, Elizabeth reacted positively. I think Randy must've called Terry because Terry called me. Randy didn't call me. Terry called me and said, Hey, you know, Miss Elizabeth is available and she's interested in coming back. Are you interested? <laughs> yes. Instant storyline fodder, multiple different ways to go at that from a storyline point of view, jealous, Randy, infatuated Liz. I mean, there would have been a million ways to go without having to really even think about it for more than a couple minutes. So I, I immediately said, sure, if she's available, let's talk. She didn't want a lot of money. It wasn't a money thing for her. I think she came in at around a buck 50 a year. Um, she didn't require, you know, first class travel or any of that other stuff. She was a very simple, easy deal to do. And she had a lot of brand equity. And like I said, it provided a plethora, I've been dying to use that word today, a plethora <laughs> of storyline opportunities. So it was a no brainer, but it had nothing to do with the, 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 the fantasy nonsense that you read to me earlier. So here's something fun. I, I want to bring this up and then we'll, we'll scoot right into the actual show. Uh, I'm having so much fun talking 96 with you. You beat the shit out of raw the day before, uh, with this clash of champions. You know, we mentioned earlier that, um, the streak sort of starts in June of 96, but you actually beat raw, uh, the day before this clash. And here's the write-up from the observer. The rating came eight days after WCW had its biggest victory to date in the Monday night war, topping the WWF by a 3.5 rating and a 5.0 share to the WWF's 2.4 rating and a 3.5 share. The margin of victory, the largest to date by either side prompted Eric Bischoff to call Vince McMahon who didn't take the call and leave a message with the secretary telling McMahon to continue whatever it is he's doing with those billionaire Ted skits. God damn, this is, this is the most I remember loving you, Eric, right now. <laughs> the, 
this is the most Eric Bischoff thing ever. What do you remember about this phone call? I remember making it. I remember doing it. I remember having a blast and laughing, laughing my ass off when I hung up at the phone. I was, I was giddy. In fact, I went right down to Jackson Jill's at the end of the day and had a couple beers. <laughs> it, was, it was a fun day. What, what, what's the, uh, what's she say when you say, uh, may I speak to Vince McMahon, please? I just, I, I know this is silly, but just recreate the scene for us because we're dying to hear the story. It, it, I mean, she obviously knew who I was. And, um, I think I asked for Vince. She said, let me put you on hold. She came back and said, I'm sorry, Vince isn't available. Is there a message I can take? And that was it. I mean, there was no, there was no long conversation. I mean, did you leave a number? No, I don't think so. That would I assumed been, he had it. Yeah. Or, or at least he, he could, could find get it. it. Yeah. Yeah. If he was looking for it, oh, it wasn't gosh. hard to find, but yeah, I remember doing it. It was fun. I just, it's the kind of shit I love doing. And again, it was to get inside of his head. It was the more I could get him off his game, the more I could make him angry. It's the same reason, you know, this past week I, I talked to uh, Christy Olson and Steve Kaufman and George Hermosa over on after 83 weeks, our YouTube show that airs on Thursdays. And, you know, they asked me about, you know, challenging Vince McMahon and why I did it. You know, part of it is to entertain myself because I love doing that kind of crazy shit. And the other part of it was I wanted to get in Vince's head. The more I could make him angry, the more I could get him to focus on his emotion, the less likely he would be to be thinking instead of reacting to emotion. And I wanted him reacting to emotion as much as I could. It was kind of Sun Tzu art of war shit um, that I believe in, but more than anything, it was just fun. Let's uh, let's talk about that nitro the night before before we jump into the clash. It's a pretty monumental show. Uh, again, it's at Caesar's Palace. We're doing double headers here, back to back. But Randy Savage beats Ric Flair for the world title on that nitro. Uh, Arn Anderson's going to try to hit Savage with some brass knuckles. Of course, Savage ducks. He hits Flair. Womp womp womp. Savage wins. Eleven minutes, seven seconds. Elbow off the top rope, and now he's your new world champion. And Meltzer would write, this led to Flair threatening to quit the promotion where he was originally scheduled to get leg dropped at the end of this clash of the champions. Even with the return of Elizabeth and the secret weapon of Kevin Green in the corner, the result of the match was switched to appease Flair with Flair and Giant beating Hogan and Savage when Flair used Nux to pin Savage. Boy, this is uh, a crazy story. Do you remember there being some pushback from Rick about dropping the belt on Monday and then taking the leg drop on Tuesday. Nope. I, and I just, I can't react too much more to Dave's craziness. So I'll just thank God the show's running long anyway. So I don't feel guilty about not trying to add some detail where detail didn't really exist. Right. But there's just no detail there. To, I just can't react to it. It's just Dave making shit up. Let's talk about, uh, the clash of the champions. Here we are now. Uh, if you're listening on ad free shows, we're an hour and 37 minutes in, by the way, you can get all these shows early and ad free over at adfreeshows.com. We've had lots of interactive experiences and boy, things are going to pop off later this week. We've got a big announcement coming on Thursday, so you don't want to miss it. It's over at adfreeshows.com. Uh, I want to be careful. Don't understate that. This is a major, major announcement. Yes. And it's one that a lot of people are going to be excited about in, in, in a very serious way. So 
just Conrad, you just because you've been working on it for a long time, and it's just like, okay, well, we got a major announcement coming up. Uh-uh. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes certain announcements deserve to be highlighted and positioned properly, and this is one of them. So there you go. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna dominate the headlines for a little bit on Thursday, but uh, you'll get it early and ad free uh, this week over at adfreeshows.com. It, it's in the observer too that you had a lot of front office folks in attendance for this show. Would that have been par for course, probably because of the TV convention? Yeah. And a lot of them were over at Cleopatra's barge. So yeah, sure. It's Vegas, baby. It's Vegas. <laughs> uh, the, uh, Melser would say the clash was a much better event viewed live than on television live. It was a collection of wrestling matches, all of which were too short, but most of which were good. The non-wrestling antics to spice up the TV show were horrible. For in particular, the pathetic multi-part mock wedding where Medusa broke up the wedding and attacked sister Sherry before she was about to say, I do with the storyline with Colonel Robert Parker had been seeing Medusa on the side. This really makes Medusa look good. Uh, but at least it puts women back in their stereotypical rightful place in the U S wrestling scene as characters, good for nothing, but sex play things or having conflicts based on sex triangles. And in some cases, octagons. When I saw the show live, it was an easy thumbs up a good show, but not a great show on television though. It wasn't nearly as good. And with all the heat and it wasn't nearly as obvious live as it was on TV, just how bad the main event was. So Meltzer was there in attendance, but pretty critical of the actual television presentation. And uh, if you're watching the video here on adfreeshows.com, you saw that you had a big reaction when I said the, uh, the, the wedding skits were not good. I thought they were the most entertaining and fun thing I've seen on television in a long time. Oh my it's gosh. Pure, it's pure comedy gold. I challenge anybody, anybody in either wrestling or I say either, cause there's only two major ones at this point, either WWE or AEW, nobody else fucking matters. I dare anybody to come up with something that's remotely as funny is that entire skit was dare you come on, prove me wrong. And in addition, I want to challenge the audience because maybe it's just me. And I had nothing to do with those skits, by the way, I didn't produce them. I didn't conceive of them. Okay. So I'm not taking any credit. There's no, I got no dog in the hunt. I don't, I forgot that they even happened. That skit. I didn't even remember it happened until I watched it this morning. I laughed my ass off. I wish I could have, I wish I could do it over again because I could make it better. There's people talking over each other so much, you know, Robert Parker just didn't know when to stop being Robert Parker. And he was talking over the top of Sherry and Sherry was trying to top talk over the top of Robert Parker. But some of the, I mean, and given that it's all improv, by the way, these were no skits. Gene Okerlund was as funny as I'd ever, and it wasn't trying to be, well, he was trying to be funny. He was being Gene. He was in character, but his, his little, his little comments, his little comments is the only word I can use. were so perfectly timed and hilarious and subtle, by the way, subtle, but funny is how well funny because they were subtle. I thought Robert Parker, Sherry did a phenomenal job. Fucking Buckhouse Buck made me laugh. Buckhouse Buck made me laugh. Dirty Dick Slater put a smile on my face. How many people can say that Dirty Dick Slater made him laugh? Right. Come on. And again, I'm going to be careful here. I get it, Dave. 
Dave, Dave likes to watch wrestling wrestling. I get that. Part of me does too, by the way, I'm not in, in fairness. Let's, let's agree at the start of this show. We talked about this being the last clash before the NWO before things really changed. And this skit is a prime example of that before and after, right? I don't think so. I mean, well, maybe, I guess that's one way of looking at it, but this is a skit by the way, that even in a post NWO, more reality based environment, I would have supported this type of thing because not everything we've talked about this before, not everything needs to be reality based, right? Wrestling needs to be a buffet. You need to have fish. You need to have chicken. You need to have steak. You need to have prime rib. You need to have salad. You need to have cookies. You need to have everything because not everybody likes just one thing. Right. And I would have, I, I thought this skit was hilarious. It could have been so much better had it been produced a little bit better. Just meaning, you know, controlling the, the, the verbiage, you know, the timing of it. The verbiage itself was hilarious. I wouldn't have changed a word of it. But again, it was people talking over each other. Look at Booker T and Stevie Ray, little role in there. Go back and watch. I challenge the people listening to the show. But it's not a challenge. But I'm, I'm hoping that people that are listening to the show go to the WWE Network, check out Clash of the Champions 32. If you don't watch anything else, watch this skit. Fast forward through it. Watch the entire skit. It occurs throughout the entire show. There's a certain part. I don't have the time code. I didn't write it down because I didn't know we were going to be talking about this. But go back and watch the expression on Booker T's face at one point. He didn't say a word. And I busted out laughing just looking at the look on, on Booker T's face within the context of that scene in that moment. It was hilarious. It was absolutely hilarious. You know, there was a scene where, because Colonel Robert Parker, for those of you who don't have the time, uh, uh, you know, to look at this uh, on the WWE network, um, there was a scene, you know, Robert Parker, you know, went to Las Vegas. He's going to marry Sherry, right? She's all excited. She's coming to Las Vegas. She's expecting a big wedding while it's happening at the little chapel, you know, where you can get married for, you know, $20 and there's a drive up window. Well, the storyline behind this whole thing, the premise, if you will, was that Parker got to Las Vegas and he lost all his money. He was trying to borrow money from mean jeans so that he could afford (laughs) the wedding at the little wedding chapel. Sherry arrives in a big limo. And by the way, Parker showed up in a limo and didn't have the money to pay the limo driver. So the limo driver's hot. There's all kinds of shit going on in the background, but Sherry, Sherry shows up finally, you know, okay, we're going to get married at a window instead of a big wedding. She's, <laughs> she needs to change into her wedding gown, which by the way, is this big goofy looking dress that makes her look like Corella DeVille. It was awesome. Um, she decides to get dressed in the limo, right? So you come out of commercial break. What do you see? You see Sherry, one of Sherry's feet with a high heel shoe on it, hanging out the window right next to her other foot in nylons. And she's presumably getting dressed while she's talking to me and Jean, who's looking through the window at her. It's just fucking hilarious. So I get it. You know, Dave and people like him, they're, you know, just wrestling, you know, hip tosses, drop kicks, you know, any Japanese shit you can throw in there would be even better. You know, flying around, do all kinds of crazy stuff that doesn't really make any sense. That's good. I get that. A lot of people like that. There's parts of me that like that too but to suggest that you know the television so sucked and to bury it for everybody else because there's something entertaining that just doesn't fit it's like if i go into a restaurant and i see something on on the menu and i just said no i'm not going to order that but the person next to me orders it and then i bury the fucking restaurant because they had it on the menu 
well, fuck, if you don't like it, you don't like it. That's okay. Don't order it. It didn't kill the television. Show. And by, by the way, Dave, obviously the rest of the world didn't agree with you either. Therefore, ergo, to make my point, the fucking rating. So that's, that's my, this is a perfect, you know, illustration of why I have an issue with, you know, guys like Dave Meltzer and Jack Sniff and Pissant wannabes like Dave, you know, Brian Alvarez is their opinions don't fucking matter. They just don't matter and they're not accurate and they don't reflect the taste of the vast majority of the audience. These guys are little basement dwelling bicycle seat sniffing wannabe dweebs that put their opinion out there, hurt other people, hurt product, have a negative effect on business because People read this stuff and they think, well, if Dave Meltzer wrote it, it must be true. If this pissant little Brian Elvarez wrote it, it, must be true. It's not true. It's just not. I thought they were funny as hell. So I'm asking people listening to the show, go back and watch it. If you agree with me that this skit was funny and fun to watch, funny is subjective. If it was entertaining and fun for you to watch, let me know. If you think I'm wrong and it wasn't entertaining and it had no place, don't let me know. I'm, I'm good with it either way. I, you know, it's not going to change my life one way or another at this point, but I am very curious and I would love to hear what a contemporary, you know, for those of you that read Dave Meltzer's sheet, contemporary means current. Okay. Um, what the current audience thinks about something that happened 25 years ago that yours truly thinks is entertaining. And obviously Dave Meltzer didn't. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know, what's easy. Bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowners or renter insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com, get a quote and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. By the way, uh, I don't know that you know this, but triple H and Stephanie got married in that drive through like on TV, not the real wedding, but the, the TV angle. And I believe Jim Ross was married there. Steve Austin was married there. Jerry Lawler, Bruce Pritchard in real life, in real life. That oh, that's was, awesome. Yeah. That's a, that's a cool little Easter egg. Let's, oh, by the way, I also want to mention, <laughs> I haven't said Brian Alvarez's name, not one time today. And you're like in a blood feud with him right now. I mean, you keep feud? coming. You no, know, just because, you know, I saw a comment that actually you made uh, in response to some stupid shit that Brian Alvarez said. And it, it just reminded me that, you know, he's, you know, Dave gets all the attention, really. But Brian Alvarez is just another one of those little sycophants. Um, those of you that read Brian Alvarez and Dave Meltzer, sycophant means suck ass. Um, he's just another one of those little dweebs that are out there. Um that write about the wrestling business whose perspective and value to the industry are worth absolutely nothing at all. He's what I, he's what he's a useful idiot. He's useful in the sense that he has an audience and he can reach a certain amount of wrestling fans and he's an idiot. So you can use people like him to help, you know, promote whatever it is you're doing 
if you can make him believe that, you know, you, you appreciate him and you like him or you think he's valuable, that's a useful idiot. And that's what Brian Alvarez is. And Dave Meltzer to a large degree, but more so lately, Brian Alvarez, just because of the stupid shit that he writes. Let's get to the clash of the champions. There was one dark match at Steve Regal and Chris Benoit. Meltzer liked it. He gave it three and a half stars. He says that Benoit was bleeding hard way around the eye from repeated headbutts by Regal and some palm blows. He said it was a UF st- UFC style implemented into the match. He dug it. Uh, and man, that must've been a, a real treat. I mean, Benoit and Regal were at the top of their game in 96. The first match we see on the card is public enemy and the nasty boys. We've talked about them a lot here. The nasty boys are a guilty pleasure for me. I think they're underrated. It goes to a double DQ finish crowds really hot, uh, for this big brawl. Uh, the fans are really into the nasty boys. Uh, after the match, Rocco rock is going to moonsault knobs, uh, on an industrial strength table, which yeah. didn't break. <laughs> it uh, didn't break at all. And yeah. it looked to me like it was about three inches thick. It was a pretty wild thing to see. There's even a big chant for the nasty boys on the match at the end, three and a quarter stars. What'd you think? Public enemy, probably not your favorite type of team, but the nasty boys were a WCW staple. By the way, we should mention the public enemy were super over the year prior in, uh, ECW. I mean, they were their top act. So it's kind of cool to see them here in WCW. And, uh, I don't know. They had a style that worked with the nasty boys. I liked this, but I usually like the nasties. what do you think? I liked it too. And I think part of it, the reason I like, I didn't, you know, that kind of match just, eh. it, the match itself didn't really excite me too much, but the, the effort that both teams put into it certainly did. But I, I, I think I'm probably um, affected more by, I liked Rocco rock. I just liked him as a person. He was really, really, when I say easy to deal with, what I really mean when I say that most of the time is very honest, very level-headed, very professional, um, no bullshit, you know, wasn't wasn't trying to work anybody, me or anybody else around him. He was just a legit nice person to do business with and, and, and valuable person to do business with. He was a very smart guy, he graduated from Rutgers University. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, he, he was a bouncer in a bar and somebody said, hey, you should be a professional wrestler. This guy was a very thoughtful, he was, I'm sorry, a very thoughtful, intelligent guy who approached the business as a profession, which is one of the reasons I like him. Johnny Grunge, I didn't have the same, you know, amount of, I guess, conversation with Johnny for whatever reason as I did with Rocco, um, but the same was true. Johnny Grunge was very easy for me to work with. And again, easy for me means professional. Not that, the, that When I say someone's easy to work with, I don't mean that they would just lay down and do whatever I'd ask them to do or what anybody else would ask them to do. What I mean is when they would come to you with an issue or a question or an idea, it was just really super professional. And regardless of whether you know I took their ideas or somebody else took their ideas or not, there was never any baggage that went with it. There was right. never any boo-boo face. There was never any resentment and pissing and moaning and stirring up shit in the locker. It was none of that. It was just simply, hey, I've got an idea. What if we do this? Mm, that's not going to work tonight because, okay, cool. Just wanted to throw it out there. Boom, let's go to the ring. That's what I mean by easy to work with, just professional. And, and Rocco was, and they both were. But like I said, I dealt more with Rocco than I did with Johnny. So that's probably why I enjoyed watching this match as much as I did is just remembering those guys and dealing with them. 
The next match. And by the way, if I'm not mistaken, and again, this is where I'm going to encourage the audience to correct me. Cause look, I know I'm wrong a lot of the times because I'm, you know, dealing with shit that happened 20, 30 years ago in some cases. And my recollection of things may not be as accurate as sometimes I like to think they are, but at least I admit that shit. Right. Right. Um, if I'm not mistaken, Public Enemy were the ones in ECW that really started using tables, yes. and it wasn't until afterwards that the Dudley Boys picked it up, right? Correct. That's kind of a cool thing. Tables are still kind of a big freaking deal in professional wrestling, and I think it's Public Enemy deserved to be acknowledged for that, even today, especially today. I mean, I'm it's, saying- an easy, it's an easy thing to forget. Sabu's probably the first guy to really start using tables, but to your point, uh, public enemy were the first big tag team and, and, a, and a big main event act for ECW. I mean, Paul Heyman had convinced the world that this is one of the best tag teams in the world. And you know, when they show up in WCW, it's not quite the same, but they're still working hard and by everything we hear, good guys, two good guys in the next match too. Dean Malenko going to pin Alex Wright in five and a half minutes. Meltzer would say it was an awesome scientific match, but probably too short. He says Malenko was awesome and Wright is going to be one of the great workers and probably not that distant of a future. And, uh, he also said that the announcing here was really bad. The epitome of it was Malenko dropping into a heel hold, which is one of the most effective legitimate submissions as everyone who follows legit fighting has learned <laughs> uh, while this potential finisher was in the ring, Tony Schiavone and Bobby Heenan were telling jokes about Sherry and the Colonel's wedding. Shivani is improving of late. As long as dusty Rhodes isn't there to do whatever it is he does. And, uh, he liked the match. He says, Malenko used the jackknife cradle, uh, but let go at two thinking it was three instead of clumsily keeping the match going because there was no three count. The bell just sounded three and a half stars, a bit of a, a weird finish here, but two very talented, capable performers. what do you think watching it back? Um, you know, I'd have to go back and watch it again after hearing Dave's recap of it. I'm, I'm not going to suggest that the finish wasn't awkward. I didn't pick it up watching it and, and maybe because I was making notes or thinking about something else I wanted to talk about in the show while I was watching the match. I thought it was a really solid match. I, I, you know, Alex, Wright. I think, you know, we often talk about people who are the most, um, uh, underrated, you know, wrestlers of, of a certain era. I think Alex Wright deserves to be included in that conversation. He, he didn't make it, you know, Dave suggested he was going to become a big star, you know, in the not too distant future. Uh, I, I don't, I don't take any exception at all. In fact, support Dave's perspective at that time about Alex. And I still hold it today. I'm not sure why it didn't work for Alex it, it, timing, probably more than anything, but man, what a, what a complete, catalog of attributes in one human being physically Alex was in great shape. He looked great. He was a great looking guy. He was capable. He wasn't great at promos, but he was capable of being great at promos. I worked with him enough, you know, in promos to know that there was a lot of potential there. Um, he, he, He could have been so much bigger as a, so much a bigger star than he was. And I guess timing more than anything was the reason why, but he was great. You know, there'll never be enough ways for me to put over Dean Malenko. I just, and again, like I, you know, I made fun of Dave for, you know, only liking one type of match or one type of wrestling presentation. I'm guilty of that at times myself, as I've admitted many times. 
And Dean Malenko, to me, represents the best of what I like, knowing that not everybody agrees with me. And if I was producing a show today, I wouldn't produce a show where everybody was some kind of version of a Dean Malenko style. I wouldn't do that because I know not everybody likes that. But, man, I do. And every time I watch a Dean Malenko match, particularly during this era, I just, I admire him so much and appreciate him so much for his approach to it. And the, look, this match was really simple. The story, the psychology behind this match was very simple. And it worked because it was consistent throughout the match. Dean Malenko worked the leg. Dean Malenko took away the advantage of Alex Wright. Alex Wright, from a physicality perspective, you know, a tale of the tape, if you will, Alex Wright should have eaten Dean Malenko alive right. in the ring. But Dean Malenko was the smarter wrestler. Dean Malenko was the more experienced wrestler. Dean Malenko knew that he was outmatched physically. So what did he do? He started chopping down the tree. He started with the legs and worked his way up, just like a good kickboxer would. You know, you don't go after someone's head right off the bat unless they're not looking or they're drunk. You know, you, you, you work your way up. And that's exactly what Malenko did in this match. And it worked. The story was there. As far as the announcing goes, you know, I'll have to go back and, and well, I'm not going to go back and listen because I don't care enough about Dave's opinion to do so, to waste my time. But um, to suggest that, you know, some obscure, although effective, if you listen to Dave, and I'm not going to de debate that, I'll, I'll give him that, some obscure submission hold that the UFC fans watch, which, by the way, was about almost nothing in 1996. UFC was not a phenom like it is now. Um, it was an emerging, basically tough man contest. But to suggest that professional wrestling and primetime on television should modify their commentary in order to appease a relatively small handful of tough man contest aficionados was stupid. But that's not uncommon. Um, so I can't comment too much on the on the quality of the announcing. But the match itself, man, I just. I loved it in so many ways. I really did. A lot to uh, talk about here outside of the ring. Uh, three little segments here. It's supposed to be Kevin Sullivan versus Disco Inferno, but instead, uh, you have a guy named Mike Winter come out dressed up as Elvis, and he does a terrible impression or impersonation. He's eating a peanut butter sandwich. Kevin Sullivan beats the shit out of him. The crowd is cheering Sullivan on. Sullivan's a heel here, uh, but. They want to see this fake Elvis get beat up. And then we see a, uh, a sting Lex Luger interview. They are our WCW tag team champions here. And out of nowhere, the road warriors return to challenge them for the titles. The road warriors are back in WCW big moment for WCW here. And there's a nice little subplot to this partnership between sting and Lex Luger where sting is our prototype of a baby face, but Luger Maybe not so much on the same page with Sting. Luger is acting like he doesn't want to re-injure Animal so soon into his comeback, and he's got this bad back, and maybe maybe that's not the best thing. And eventually says, "Well, you guys don't even deserve a shot. I mean, the American males and State Patrol they deserve title <laughs> shots first, which is just great shit." Meanwhile, Sting is like, "No, I'm ready. Let's sign now." This is a nice little segment here. Uh, I don't think maybe. 
Uh, Meltzer was thrilled with the, the use of the road warriors. Maybe the, he was expecting a bigger presentation, but furthering this whole sting Luger thing this way, I really liked, uh, what'd you think of the Elvis skit? And, and then the promo where the road warriors come back and this whole Luger sting subplot. I'm, you know, I'm, I don't have a therapist or anything like that. I'm thinking about getting one after watching the Elvis Kevin Sullivan skit. <laughs> I just, I think I'm scarred. I'm not sure if I'll get over it. If I don't get over it on my own, I'll be tagging you in and looking for some kind of therapist here in Huntsville while I'm still here. I have no idea why we did that. I have no idea. I, I, I just got to let it go at that. I'm sorry. I don't have anything more. I got nothing. But the road warrior stuff, that was good, wasn't it? The Road Warrior stuff, I, I kind of like, but just to, you know, put it in context and you touched on it. You know, there's a little bit of a, of a backstory here or sub, subplot, if you will, um, where I think the night before uh, a Nitro, whenever it was, I think it was the night before, yeah. Luger and Sting won the World Tag Team Championships, if I'm right. Right. I think I'm right. And Luger, unbeknownst to Sting, Either, did he use a foreign object or something? I'm not asking you. To, I don't expect you to know because I don't know. And I just watched the damn thing. But there was some kind of shenanigans. I've been waiting to say shenanigans. Shenanigans and shady. I love those two words all of a sudden. Um, there was some kind of shenanigans going on the night before where Luger either used a foreign object or did something behind the referee's back in order to win the match. Sting kind of caught wind of it towards the end, wasn't really happy with how things went down. It was very, it was subtle. It wasn't over, over the top, overacted. It was pretty subtle, which made it effective. And it carried over into this interview where Sting is, yay, rah, rah, competition, hey, Road Warriors, man, it's been too long, you know, babyface, you know, reaction. You want to get in there and compete. Even if even if you're going to have to get in there with your friends, you know, you're going to compete. That's what it's all about. That's what it should be all about. Unless you're a guy like Lex Luger, and he's going to kind of backpedal and wheel and deal and soft shoe his, his way out of that situation and in the process offend the Road Warriors. So I, I thought it was really well done. I think, again, you know, there's a couple of times watching this show back. I'm like, oh, man, I wish I had a chance to, you know, produce that scene one more time because the it, it, it was a little rushed. Yeah. I think if it would have been given a little bit more time, there yeah. would have been a little bit more real reaction to each other instead of just getting their dialogue in. Um, it would have had more of, of an effect positive effect on the outcome, but overall it was really cool seeing it. And I, God, it's just, this is the other bittersweet thing about doing these shows is when you see so many people who you had relationships with or genuine, genuine affection for who have passed on, you know, especially so recently, yeah. so many of them, it's just, you know, it's a, it makes me a little melancholy, but um, beyond that um, it was really fun to watch. Yeah. Your, uh, your point about the night before Jimmy Hart handed Luger a roll of quarters, or I think on commentary, they said it was like uh, silver dollars from the casino. Uh, but that's the idea is, you know, is he going to listen to Jimmy Hart or is he going to listen to sting? Is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? Uh, Paul Orndorff has a story to tell. We get a four minute interview with Paul Orndorff that comes off pretty well here. He's pushing that he's proud of who he is and, and what he's done. And he's got the big neck surgery and the big neck brace and He's even 
talking about the Vader incident without actually saying Vader's name, but he talks about knocking out a 450 pound gorilla. Uh, I thought it was cool. You're trying to turn Paul Orndorff into a bit of a baby face and he's crediting Gary Spivey with helping give him a pep talk that changed the way he was thinking. And then when we finished that taped interview, we see Gary Spivey in the crowd. We recently had a little fun talking about that segment. Um, but Orndorff here, man, uh, he's grown to become one of my absolute favorites. I liked this segment. What'd you think? I loved it. And again, I'm skewed by my affection for Paul Orndorff. Um, have you ever gotten to spend time with Paul? No, I've never met him. Man, what a, what a treasure, you know, somebody, I can't remember who it was. I was talking to, it might've been on the after 83 weeks show. I think it was. And Christy Olson, um, asked me if I had seen the undertaker, um, Joe Rogan interview. And I saw bits and pieces of it, but evidently undertaker and don't quote me on this, please don't please. If you're writing about what I'm saying here, cause I might get this wrong. Um, evidently undertaker said something about, you know, today's wrestlers, you know, yeah. After the matches go and play video games, they're not real men, something to that effect or the, 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 the message it sent was sounded something like that. when men were men is the phrase. When men were men. And yeah. you know, that can mean a lot of different things to different people. And I think a lot of it has to do with your age and the way you were brought up in the environment that you were brought up in. It's, there's not one standard, you know, not one size fits all as far what, as far as what, you know, being a man means, but with that in mind, let me say that Paul is one of those guys that I can that I would think Undertaker was talking about. He was just, he was a real guy. I mean, he just, he was honest. He was tough as fucking nails. He didn't put up with any shit. He wouldn't give you any shit. He would never start anything, but he wouldn't take an ounce of it either. And he just, I miss Paul, you know, one of my favorite memories of Paul. And I have quite a few of them, but one in particular um, was a, hog hunting trip. Paul Orndorff wanted to take Garrett, my son and I, um, on a hog hunting trip down in Southern Georgia because Paul had some friends that owned a big, uh, plantation down there and they did a lot of hog hunting and we just had the best time one weekend. You know, I think it was the first weekend that Garrett ever tried moonshine. <laughs> and this is the real shit too. This is, this isn't the stuff that you could buy at a liquor store called moonshine. Um, it was just so much fun, but yeah, seeing this interview really brought back a lot of really good memories about Paul. Let's get to the next, uh, match here. This is the one that a lot of people remember most from this entire show. It's Eddie Guerrero wrestling, Brian Pillman. They go five minutes and 50 seconds. Pillman wins the match with a cross body and holding onto the trunks, but that's not what's memorable. It's the unplanned incident. Uh, we should remind everybody, Brian Pillman is doubling down on his whole loose cannon persona. There's a spot here in the match where he's just trying to uh, attack the crowd and, uh, do whatever he can to make a spectacle of himself. And part of that involves getting behind Bobby Heenan and trying to tear, tear his jacket off in the process. Heenan has a very bad neck, uh, from back when he wrestled, he freaks out because he's watching the monitor. And thinks that 
he's going to do something physically with him and yells on the air through his headset. What the fuck are you doing? And immediately when Pillman lets go, Heenan grabs his jacket and starts down the aisle. Like he's leaving. Once he gets to the aisle, he starts to process, I guess what's happened and realizes I need to go back. So he goes back and apologizes and says something like, listen, if I said something I shouldn't have, I'm sorry, but I've got a bad back. I've got a bad, what he's doing. He's crazy. And then even when Pillman wins the match, Heenan stands up almost like I'm not putting up with any bullshit here. Heenan was very, very frustrated in this. It gets two and a half stars. Um, the match is what it is. Uh, it's almost the backdrop to this actual interaction. You watched this back for the first time in 25 years, Eric. What'd you think? I, 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 have you ever heard me say, have you ever heard me talk about how some things are just too well produced in WWE? Yeah. They're just so, it's so flawless and seamless and perfect that it doesn't feel live. Doesn't feel real. And I've often yeah, it just doesn't feel real. And, and but if it doesn't feel real, it doesn't feel live. It feels like it's been in post-production for three weeks and it just absolutely polished every single aspect of that live show. So it no longer feels live. It's like going to a freaking movie. Good for them. That's amazing. And no one, I think, on planet Earth is capable of producing live television as flawlessly as WWE is on a consistent basis. However, to me, it makes the show feel less real as a result. And I've often said one of the beautiful things about live television, one of the advantages you have in in live television is that feeling that anything can happen in any given moment. And sometimes it could be something as meaningless or small as, you know, a cameraman tripping over a cable and, you know, blowing a shot, for example. That's a bad example, but it's an example. The situation with Heenan is another example of, now it was a bad situation, so I don't want to sound like I'm encouraging this type of thing. I, I wouldn't encourage it. I'm just pointing out, this is what happens when live TV is imperfect. This is what happens when Brian Pillman, in this case, went in for business for himself, decided in, in the heat of the moment, in the passion of the moment, more than anything, that he was going to go after Bobby, probably not even remembering or possibly realizing that Bobby had neck issues. And they were severe. It occurred in a match that took place in Japan a long time before this, but they were still severe issues that Bobby was very fearful of. He didn't want to be paralyzed. And again, either because Brian didn't know it or didn't remember it or whatever. And Brian would have never gotten physical, physical with Bobby, you know, without having a conversation with him first, but going out and grabbing him by his jacket, maybe pulling him in to try to protect him from Eddie or whatever he was going to do. That's something that, you know, most announcers would be very comfortable doing if they didn't have a broken freaking neck. Sorry, Kurt. Um, but that's what happened. And Bobby really reacted. I mean, it was an honest reaction. What the fuck are you doing? I heard that. I actually had to go back and, and 
listen to it a second time to make sure I wasn't hearing it wrong. I thought maybe Bobby said, what the heck are you doing? But no, he said, what the fuck are you doing on live television? Now, we probably had a five second delay or a seven second delay. So we might've been able to cover that. I don't know um, how it came off on a live broadcast, but watching it back, you clearly heard it. And then as you pointed out very clearly, Bobby, you know, and you could see his, his anger, his fear more than anything, I think he was fearful really showed camera was on them. You know, they did what they should have done. They're catching it as it's happening. And then Bobby came back. But if you watch Bobby throughout the rest of the night, every time somebody got near that announce table, you'll see it again in the main event. If you go back and watch the show, uh, there was one point when I think giant had Hogan outside of the ring, or maybe it was Hogan and Savage. I can't remember who it was, but they were outside next to the next to the announce table. And Bobby, as soon as he saw them coming in his direction, on goes the jacket, he goes around. As soon as they left the announce table area, Bobby came back and sat down again. So it clearly had a big effect on Bobby. But, you know, it was live TV, at, and it's unfortunate because it was real, and it was real fear on Bobby's part because of a real injury. But it also made for really good television. Oh, the best. I mean, people are still talking about it to this day. So it's unfortunate that Bobby was in a, in a bad spot here, but it did make for great TV. Uh, Heenan wrote in his book that he thought he would be fired when he said it. Was there any pushback from anyone at TBS or did everybody sort of understand the circumstance? There was no pushback whatsoever. It was a non-issue. Let's talk about what's next. We've got Hogan and Savage and the late great Kevin green doing an interview, uh, before the show, they were running down the lineup and the two people whose names that were booed the most were Kevin green and Hulk Hogan. Uh, of course, during the interview, they're still booing green here, but they're cheering Hogan and Savage. But there's a ton of cowboy fans and Steeler haters here in the audience. But man, as you said, what a cool moment, you know, to use this celebrity uh, right before the the big Super Bowl game. And here's a participant on your show. Uh, really cool to see. Next up, we've got Sting and Lex Luger taking on William Regal and Bobby Eaton. Uh, Bobby Eaton is doing his aristocrat deal at the time. So he's trying to fit in with Regal. Boy, so much great talent here. Regal obviously pulling double duty as we talked about. He had a dark match with Chris Benoit. Uh, I really like this just because I like all of the the folks involved. Uh, Meltzer would say Regal had blown out his already injured knee in the Benoit match. So between his limitation by the injury and his opponent's limitations, he mainly resorted to facial comedy. He only gave it a star and a half or a star and a quarter rather, but I don't know. I just like all the guys involved here. I guess I liked it a little better. Sting gets the win with the uh, Scorpion death lock on uh, Bobby Eaton. What'd you think? I agree with you. You know, this was a, again, you know, as we've been talking about throughout this episode, this is a pre NWO reality based kind of formula. This is a typical eighties and early nineties formula for this match. You know, uh, Bobby Eaton as a British aristocrat is, is a little bit like the, you know, silly wedding angle. It's just funny on its face. Um, it's not meant to be taken seriously. Um, it's not a shoot. You wouldn't see it in Japan. Sorry, Dave. Um, but it was entertaining. And like you, you know, you look at everybody involved and and I, for what it was meant to be. And by the way, this is not a pay-per-view. This right. is a television show, folks. On TBS for free. For free. This is not a pay-per-view. So the standards are a little bit different. The goals are different. The strategies are different. And with all that said, I thought this match was a great match. 
particularly at this point in time, particularly given it, it could serve as, and I'm not sure if it did or didn't, maybe I'd have to go back and look at this, but keep in mind, there's a little bit of early tension between Sting and Luger mm-hmm. as a result of the creepy kind of devious, nefarious Jimmy Hart assisted win the night before Luger's reaction to the road warriors during the interview that took place prior to this match. And now this match. So I don't remember what the strategy was creatively, but if the strategy was to create a little bit of doubt between sting and Luger, you know, this match didn't need to be a pay-per-view type of match with a phenomenal finish in a, you know, a Dave Meltzer, five-star you know, rating this match needed to advance a story and showcase two top stars. What a great show this is, by the way, because next up we've got a Pillman interview with you and Pillman is threatening, uh, you know, he does a great promo here, but it's about not the seven deadly sins, but the seven words you can't say on TV. He's threatening to just run through those words and you're nervous about that and pulling the mic away. And don't you do that? And of course he has a few things to say about Paul Orndorff, but this is a great segment. And, uh, well, I mean, I guess at this point it would have been six words because Bobby Heenan already got fuck out of the way for us. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. You're either going to have to come up with a new word or deal with six. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great segment though. Really good stuff. I just, I'm, I love this era of WCW because it's so newsworthy and Next up, we've got some international talent. We're going to bring in Mike Tanay for commentary, which was always a treat here. Conan is the Mexican heavyweight champion, totally different presentation from the K dog presentation. You remember from the NWO, he's going to pick up a win over psychosis here. Who was one of my absolute favorites. Uh, they go five minutes and 26 seconds. Conan gets the win with a Ziploc. Meltzer would say they were supposed to go twice as long. So they started out showing some mat holds. And then they were going to let psychosis run wild. And finally a big finish as it was Conan demonstrated a few submission maneuvers, never seen by this crowd did some acrobatic stuff. Psychosis did a wild dive over the top rope. And then they were told to go home five minutes early because the show was running late. Uh, so there's the finish crowd seemed not to exactly understand what they were doing, but liked it as both men got ovations leaving from a crowd that coming in had no clue who they were or what they were doing two and three quarter stars. And man, you know, I know that sometimes you're critical and I guess I am too of things that Meltzer would write, but I think the cruiserweight division and the use of international talent that you felt so strongly about that we hadn't really seen on American television can be summed up with that last sentence. The crowd seemed to not understand exactly what they were doing, but liked it as both men got ovations, leaving from a crowd that going in had no clue who they were or what they were doing. I think that's really powerful when you think about it, because everything about wrestling is character, right? We, we want to love these guys or hate these guys and we need an emotional investment. So when you just throw two guys out there cold that we don't know from Adam's house cat and they win you over, they got something fucking special. And I think that's what made nitro so great at times, because you were willing to roll those dice with unfamiliar characters and not just sort of paint by numbers, the way wrestling had always been presented in America. And this is a great example of that. Mike Tanay, Conan and psychosis. Great segment for a clash of the champions. I can't put it over strong enough. I loved it. What'd you think? I, I agree. And I, it, it, I mean, I agree a lot. Thank you. It, and this was, you know, this was part of a bigger strategy. Now, 
I think the whole international, whether it was bringing in, you know, Japan. And by the way, you know, Bill Watts brought in guys from New Japan. Jim Hurd had brought in guys from New Japan. It wasn't like I invented that shit, right? I did it on a more extensive basis, and I, I did it with a strategy in mind as opposed to just a one-off, hey, we've got Muda coming over, yay, for a week, boom, gone, no more to talk. You know, bringing the, the Japanese over as a part of the cruiserweight division and the, the luchadors over as a part of the cruiserweight division, it made wrestling different than the audience was used to. And they leaned forward and wanted to see more. They leaned forward and wanted to learn more. They leaned forward and realized that WCW was different than everything that they had been watching for so long prior. And I agree with you that that was, I've said this before, and you challenged me on it, you know, to a degree. And I I admitted that I underestimated at the time the value of the cruiserweights. And when I say the cruiserweights, I'm talking specifically about the luchadors and and the Japanese and the international talent that were part of it. And obviously there were, you know, there were people who were, you know, U.S. citizens and Canadian citizens that were part of it as well. But the core of the cruiserweight division was built upon international talent. And I, I think knowing now what I didn't realize then, that had a much more significant impact on the growth and the success of Nitro than people think, or I thought at right. the time, you know, people now have a tendency to need your God. Oh, the only reason Nitro got over is because the NWO, oh, fuck you. You're wrong. As we've talked about in this show, Nitro was gaining and, and defeating WWE long before the NWO or shortly before the NWO, not long before be realistic about it. But the fact is we were defeating WWE without the NWO Yeah, NWO catapulted it, but it was the things like this match with, with, with Conan and, and um, psychosis that gave us the ability to be different than, and that was the whole premise of nitro. I knew it wouldn't be successful if it wasn't different than the WWE. And this was one important element of that different than strategy that took place long before the NWO. Let's get to our main event. It's Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage beating, uh, Ric Flair and the giant. Of course, their super secret weapon is revealed to be miss Elizabeth. So Elizabeth is back in wrestling and, um, we should mention as well. There's a lot of women dressed up, uh, here. Deborah McMichael <laughs> is here. Linda Balea is here. Linda's sister, uh, woman who's Nancy Sullivan, of course, and a couple other models. Uh, the match itself sort of is what it is, but it uh, goes nine minutes, 51 seconds. Hogan and Savage get the win. Um, talk to us a little bit about, uh, we should also to mention, this is exactly what's written about Kevin Sullivan, not Kevin Sullivan, Kevin green after the match green, who clearly wants to be a pro wrestler. And as a big time Hogan fan teamed with Hogan to throw Pillman and Zodiac over the top rope. The fans booed those spots, but cheered Hogan far more than anyone else on the show for the rest of the match star in a quarter. So it's a budding friendship and relationship with Kevin green and WCW. We know he's actually going to wrestle with the company the following year and, uh, be a big part of WCW pay-per-views for a, a bit here. what do you think watching this match back? I mean, it's cool because we get Kevin green. It's cool because we have miss Elizabeth, but outside of that, it feels a little paint by numbers, maybe. Oh, paint by numbers for sure. The match itself was, eh, 
I mean, this again, pre NWL, pre attitude era, pre all of the changes that we saw as a result of Nitro in the years following, you know, the NWO, this was, this match could have taken place in 1989. It could have taken place in 1992 or 93 or 1990, whenever this was a paint by numbers, WWE formula match that just happened to involve Kevin Green and a few others. But look for what it what it needed to be, the purpose that it was to serve at that point, the fact that it was a television show and not a pay-per-view. Even 25 years later, I'm not embarrassed at all by this. And right. sometimes it's hard. You know, you go back and you look at something 25 or 30 years later, and, you know, the standards of athleticism, the standards of, of, of storytelling, the standards, well, not so much storytelling anymore, but the standards of production, for example, are so much higher now than they were 25 and 30 years ago that sometimes it's, it's like going back and looking at a picture of yourself in your high school yearbook and go, oh, fuck, why did I wear that? I look like an idiot. Same thing happens when we go back and watch these shows sometimes. But even this match, not even this match, this match didn't make me feel, oh, I wish we would have done things differently. It was what it was at that time. And I think it served its purpose well. I think the energy that Kevin brought, the credibility, oh, by the way, the the assist that having a guy on his way to the Super Bowl happened to swing by and be a part of a TBS show at the peak of his athletic career. Um, God, do you think that had any impact on the advertisers and, and oh, yeah, the of course. television stations and all of the people within the television industry at that time? So one might argue if you're a fre- if you're a wrestling expert who writes about wrestling, made no sense. Kevin Green added nothing to it, but you could, you could take whatever position you want. Or maybe if you're not writing about wrestling, you're just a fan at home, scratching your head going, oh, who's Kevin Green? Maybe you're not a football fan. Um, why is he in there? Why, do, why should I care? That's possible. But from a business perspective, from a strategic point of view, immense value immense value and the fact that we we're able to develop a great relationship with Kevin and he would go on to become an important part of some of the things that we were doing the following year and a year after that. I, this is awesome. I was proud of what we did that night. I just realized there was today. Just realized there was a typo in the observer here. It says Hogan and Savage beat flair and giant nine fifty one when flair pinned Savage after KOing him with Nux. So I read that even though I knew, wait a minute, flair won. So yeah, flair gets the win here, knocking out Randy Savage. Uh, there was one dark match, about 75% of the crowd left though. It's one man gang beating disco inferno in six minutes and 16 seconds. Uh, let's do a couple of questions and then we'll wrap things up. I want to give everybody a heads up. We're going to be back next week with a little bonus, uh, here on adfreeshows.com. We're going to watch this Monday night raw where they debut the, the characters, the huckster and the billionaire Ted and, and the nacho man. Uh, that's a Monday night raw from January 15th. So we'll watch that on adfreeshows.com. Our main feed here next week will be all about Harlem heat, uh, which will be a fun little profile show. Uh, don't forget. You can get all those shows early and ad free, you know, where adfreeshows.com. Uh, two questions, Eric, then we'll wrap this one up. Uh, Ken Brzezinski wants to know it's well-established gorilla monsoon was the biggest gambler in the WWF. Who was the biggest gambler in WCW? You know, I, I don't recall anybody standing out as, uh, as a hardcore gambler. I'm sure there was one, but I, it, it, you know, I know Greg Gagne 
was a huge gambler. You know, he'd go to Vegas when AWA was uh, producing their shows at the Showboat in Vegas, and and Greg was a massive gambler. Um, but I, I don't recall hearing about anybody that was a big time gambler in, in Vegas. Most of the guys would get there, and it was eating and drinking in strip clubs. So <laughs> I don't know who gambled. One last one, then we'll wrap things up. Uh, did Eddie get pissed at Pillman for the Heenan incident, or was he aware of it? Comes from Ray LaDuke. You know, I don't, I don't remember Eddie, you know, expressing any anger to me. I doubt that he did. And again, I just want to say this and make sure I'm clear in context. What, what Brian did was not unusual. Right. What Brian did, if he would have done it to any other announcer, would have been no big deal. But Bobby had a significant neck injury, which caused him to react the way he did. I'm not sure Eddie knew that Brian or, the, or that Bobby had a neck injury. Not a lot of people did. It occurred in Japan back in the eighties, I think or early nineties. So it wasn't a recent issue. Um, Bobby didn't talk about it a lot. So I, I doubt that Eddie got angry about it. You know, most of the matches in WCW at that time were very improv. They weren't, you know, a paint by numbers. Here's your script for your match. Go out and do it exactly like this kind of a match. There was a lot of, you know, free flowing, spontaneous moments and improvisation in WCW matches at the time. It was more the norm than anything else, not the exception. So I I doubt that he had any issue with it. Well, overall, Eric, thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. Two thumbs up. I liked it. I agree. Two thumbs up for me. And we hope it's two thumbs up for you. Appreciate everybody and all of your support uh, here on the main feed. And of course, over at adfreeshows.com and look forward to visiting with you real soon. Next week, we'll be back for Harlem heat right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. Hey, before we get out of here, I want to remind you that at savewithconrad.com, we don't just help people refinance. We can help you buy your dream home, but don't take my word for it. Check out Mickey. That's right. Mickey James from WWE. She and her husband, the NWA world champion, Nick Aldis went to savewithconrad.com. We hooked them up and they left us this five-star review. Conrad and his entire team were amazing. We found the perfect house and they worked so hard to make it a reality. So grateful. I would suggest them to anyone looking to buy a home, refinance, or upgrade their existing home. If you want someone who will work hard for you, this is your team. Thanks, guys. Mickey. No, thank you, Mickey. We appreciate you and Mr. Aldous putting your faith and confidence in us. And we're going to treat you guys listening at home right now the exact same way. We're hooking up all the stars, and you can be our next success story. I want to remind you, with interest rates lower than ever, that means your buying power is at an all-time high. What's that mean in layman's terms? You can get a bigger, nicer, better house with a cheaper monthly payment than ever before. Find out how easy it is to get started right now at savewithconrad.com. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. And by the way, if you don't qualify right now, we're going to get you a battle plan to show you how to qualify later this year. But you need to start right now at savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. And did I mention we're licensed in more than 40 states? Step one to getting into your dream home. Save with Conrad.com. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.